Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please start your copy of On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 3, 2, 1, now. Hello and welcome to the director's commentary of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, a James Bond film released in 1969, directed by myself, the ghost of Peter R. Hunt. I was alive at the time. That is correct. Joined in the voicing booth Uh, by well-known Bond producer Albert R. Broccoli, or Cubby, Mm. of course, as I'm known to my friends. Great to have you here, Cubby. Well, it's great to um, be haunted by your ghostly spectre. I've really been enjoying this, what I call, third stage of my creative career. It was the stuff I did in Britain, the stuff I did in America, and now the things I've got on in the afterlife. And what have those been? A lot of director's commentaries. I see. Yeah. like to get back in the booth and back on the tools in front of a microphone. So this is uh, the George Lazenby Bond. As yes, we, the only as one. We call it. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what the deal with that is. I think hopefully George is going to stop by the studio later on to, to give his two cents. That'd be a real treat. I haven't seen him since I visited him two weeks ago. How was he doing? Uh, pretty, pretty good. Still confusingly writing the coattails of this film that came out oh, 60 odd years ago, I think. Can't blame him. I mean, it's a, it's a great film. And in, in my eyes, he was a fantastic Bond. A man more or less built for the role. Wow. Cubby, high praise coming from a man responsible for spearheading the whole Bond operation from its inception in Dr. No. The iconic John Barry theme song. It, it gets the hairs on the back of your head stood up when you see it in a big theatre. Of course, we're not doing that today. We're watching this on a cell phone. Yeah, we are. We're watching it on a cell phone on a deck yes. <laughs> out the back of someone's house. Yes. Because even ghosts must respect COVID compliance. That's right. Now, this film has been much derided by the fan base and by uh, cinema viewers at large, I feel. But I actually watched the film recently to get ready for this director's commentary. You know what? Fuck you guys. I made a great film. Well, as a general rule, I don't uh, watch the James Bond films. They're not really for me. Right. Uh, so I, I've not seen this since working on it. I never actually saw the completed film, but I do remember it was, I thought, unfairly derided 
um, you know, I think change can be difficult, especially for, for super fans. And we've seen that as time has marched forward. Uh, you know, fans turning on intellectual properties because they're, they're no longer being realised exactly as they, as they imagined. And I, I feel like this film, and George in particular, suffered at the hands of that sort of toxic fandom. Poor George Lazenby. One of the early victims of that sort of phenomenon. Now, how, here we have um, our so-called Bond girl for the film. The actress's name escapes me, but... I just called her Tracy on set um, because... That really pissed her off as well. Well, I was trying to enforce a method style of acting onto the cast, and they weren't really for it. I was trying to make sure no one would get out of role at any point. I think you would call George George, and that would bother him because he wanted to be called James. So I think it was the sort of chopping and changing. Well, this this is... It was so important to me on my one outing as director, finally, of a James Bond all my own, that I put my mark on it. And one of those things involved this layered approach of George Lazenby as a character playing a secret agent within the world of the film, you see. So the decision to, to, to name that character the same as the person playing the character yes. was, I think, what caused a lot of confusion. Because often you'd instruct George and George the person would respond, but you'd be talking to George the character. I would say, now I need to talk to George now in the fashion of sort of a medium or ghost whisperer. And he was very confused because obviously his name is George, you see. Um, but I was trying to reach the character of George playing James Bond within the world of the film. A lot of people don't realise that, and I think it contributes a lot to why people um, didn't really love well, this movie. It's, it's interesting you say that, um, because while, admittedly, people didn't necessarily love... Oh, there you go. Oh, that iconic line, iconic Bond, James line. Bond. I, I had to give him that one. It was part of contract negotiations. You tried to hold out the most iconic line in all the Bond films? I didn't want it in my one. I wanted it to be different. That's right. I remember on the, the first day on set, you said he's going to say um, the name's James Bond James. Yes. But everyone agreed that there was no rhythm to that, and it didn't really make a lot of sense. There's well, no... do, it doesn't really matter to me what the crew had to say on the day. It's not a democracy, after all. Well, I'm but... not really crew. I'm, I'm the producer. I'm sort it's... of responsible for the entirety of the franchise. It's but... true. Everyone else could go to hell, though. Now, this action sequence um, is pretty fantastic. James Bond in immediate peril in minute seven of the film uh, against sort of an unknown foe. He's lured in using a honey trap, Dame Diana Rigg portraying Tracy or Contessa, depending on the scene. That's right. And we we had a a lot of kids on set that day, and um, we sent them out swimming, and we had to shoot around them. It was very frustrating. Yes. I don't know why we decided to have Bring Your Child to Work Day on this particular day of production. The, fir- the first day of production. First day of production, we see Bring Your Kid, it'll ingratiate us as a crew, yeah. it'll make us a family. They were so noisy and, and needy, I think, was what bothered me. And so we sent them all out into the ocean, and it, most of them came back. Most of them did. Some people say little Jeremy's still out there swimming to this very day. <laughs> And if he is, you can only imagine how how strong he is. And also how much older he is now. This movie, of course, was about 50 years ago. Making would, Jeremy, I guess, 53? Yeah, is it 50 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about right, isn't it? It is, yeah. Oh, yeah, Jeremy. Don't you worry about Jeremy. 
He's a strong, grizzled, seafaring man, and not on a ship like how the cheetahs do it, but at his own hand. That's right. Now, that sort of established a, a, a shooting style and a tone for the action sequences, Peter, and it's one that I think, um, again, probably caught some derision upon release, but... That was another line that's all me. This never happened to the other fellow. That's I a- wanted there to be a sort of fourth wall self-referential moment in the film that, that people could get very mad about if they wanted to. Yes, that line does puncture the world of the film, but also it's funny, and it, it's turned into a very fruitful um, merchandise line for the great George Lazenby. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Does he pop that on some caps, has he? Caps, T-shirts. Tea towels? Beer coolers, tea towels. Good on him. And then you got your iconic sort of uh, gorgeous woman in silhouette. Yeah, now this is one thing that you and I went back and forth on because I didn't want to have the credit sequences the other ones have with these sort of tessellations and geometry over a Bond theme while we had gorgeous silhouetted women. I had a whole other direction for the kind of music video portion of the intro credits. Why don't you tell everyone what that was? Well, what I wanted to have, my creative vision, was um, all the kids that we brought in on set, that wasn't for nothing. I wanted to have them laughing, playing, forming human pyramids, making sandcastles, and use that footage to remind people of all the things that James Bond missed out on as a child, Uh, being an orphan. Yes. You did really want to hammer the orphan element. The orphan element to me was the key to this this film's emotional heart. Uh, That and picking an Australian model to portray the lead character those were the two things that i thought would bring the audience right in but unfortunately i I lost this battle with you didn't i cubby and we have um the sequence that we see here a more traditional bond sequence and i i think it's sort of you know i'm not i'm not against changing certain things and um and we did as you as you'll soon see as we watch the film but I, i just think some things in the bond world are untouchable and that line the name's bond james bond um these sort of music videos you call them opening sequences also just seeing some uh, sexy people and villains from years gone by and silhouettes it was also from memory cubby something that I, I think you've been doing this since Doctor No with the James Bond movies because you thought that all movies were going to start like this you thought Bond was the ship that would launch intro sequences that were kind of these music video montages. Well, but no one else has taken it up. You, you say that, but to my credit, this sort of ferried uh, change in cinema where it used to be you go to the moving pictures and there'd be these very long, drawn out sort of what are now considered closing credit sequences to open the movie. So everyone knows exactly who's responsible for what they're about to watch. Mm-hmm. And, and we wanted to zhuzh that up a bit because we found that audiences were. Um, no one was seeing your name. Yeah. No one was seeing Albert Broccoli. Because they were leaving the cinema when the the credits were rolling, and well, no one was seeing the movies. They were walking out. They thought they'd seen the whole movie already. At the end credits, when they watched the opening credits, believing they were the end credits. Oh, I see. They were walking to a movie, see credits, and yeah. say, "I must have got the time wrong." Yes, and then they'd this leave, the and it was. I mean, we got the money all the same, but it was hugely frustrating. Very difficult to get word of mouth when no one's actually seeing the film. Yeah. So we zhuzhed up the opening credits. We put in all that music and the silhouettes and stuff, and um, you know, and then a lot of other movies they didn't follow the 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 path that we charted. They instead just started whacking the credits at the end. It's also quite common to have the news on. 
uh, back when, when maybe a little bit before this movie came out, but around that sort of era, I remember distinctly we had to fight the cinemas to make sure the news didn't come on. Uh, on before hour. On Her Majesty's Secret Service would air. We'd say it punctures the world of the movie, and they'd say, go fuck yourself, it's the news. And we'd say, go fuck yourself, the name's Bond, James Bond. We're selling a lot of popcorn for you people, all right? A lot of Coca-Colas, a lot of Pepsis, a lot of, uh, lot of Morrows. Uh, you might not That's have Morrows, right. a lot of Snickers bars. Now, it was important to you, as I recall here, um, that this opening sequence with the, the cards and the sort of debonair you know, uh, set and setting and the, the yes. characters. James Bond is in a upmarket casino hotel. Right. And uh, because I insisted on putting my mark on this film after they finally gave me the reins to direct, I thought, why don't I make up my own card game for this, them to play at the casino? And it is, and to this day, incredibly confusing. It resembles... Blackjack in part, but then you insisted on having James Bond deal a lot of the hands. Yes, and um, and others at the table have a little. Uh, all the players are allowed to handle the cards and, mm-hmm. and throw them around. Yes, and you yep. you insisted that there was no internal logic to the rules of the card game. You said, well, it, the internal logic is the game must be played with confidence, and the word bank must be said a minimum of 15 times What'd during call, a hand. What do you call the game? Banco. Yeah. And so people just have to take turns handling cards, saying banco to other people at the table, throwing money in a and, pile yeah. to create a sort of spectacle for passers-by who see this pile of 100,000 francs. francs. Well, and uh, a lot of people saying banco, banco, yeah. banco. The issue, of course, was that none of the actors understood the rules of the game, and so they would sort of be improvising a winner of each hand because a lot of this is inconsequential to the plot. And then you would step around from behind the camera and say, "No, no, you wouldn't have won this hand." You, you actually—that's not how banco, banco, yeah. banco works, which is the name of and the game. The, the, the cast and crew would say, "Well, how, how how does it work? You tell us how it works." I'd say banco, banco, banco is a simple premise. <laughs> A lot of money, a lot of people saying banco, and beautiful women are able to join the table from being a spectator, bet money they don't have, get themselves into trouble. And that is how we tied it into the plot. Um, Diana Rigg, making uh, a sort of second appearance after the beach, takes a punt on banco, 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 loses the hand because she wasn't confident enough to claim the money, doesn't have the goods to pay up, and so James Bond bails her out. And so they, they are, and thus lives. begins a romance for the ages. Yes, that's right. We we now have our leading lady and leading man on the screen, and as you can see, the um, well, the the, the sexual chemistry is absolutely crackling. I remember during shooting, I had to carry with me at all times uh, a hip holstered on my right was a loud hailer so that I could yell at the cast and crew to do things for me. We were shooting in pretty close quarters. So On that- the left was a spray bottle of water so I could keep George Lazenby off of Diana Rigg. <laughs> it was important that we kept the chemistry on the camera, and I yeah. thought that if they were able to sort of dissipate that in between shooting, we would lose some of that electricity. So I was constantly squirting them like a cat to get off the sofa. George George Lazenby um, is, and I'm sure he'll attest to this when he stops by, he is an incredibly sexual person. He, yes. He oozes a, a sexuality and a confidence. Um, an eroticism, yeah. if you will. 
Oh, now this was a fun scene to shoot. Um, we thought it was important that James Bond got in a physical altercation like he normally does, but this time because I insisted on putting my personal mark on this film after they finally gave me the reins to direct, I thought it would be fun if James Bond kind of got his ass kicked a little bit. Yeah, get him roughed up a little bit. So he did for a while, but then I lost my fight to you, Cubby. Yeah. And uh, ultimately... Well, it's just not a James Bond film if he gets killed off in the first 15 minutes. Yeah, he didn't need to be killed, be uh, get killed necessarily in the scene. But what I wanted was um, early doors, first 15 minutes, what have we got? Bond in trouble, Bond girl enters, we're in a beautiful casino. James Bond is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of the film after a fight. And it's not to say that... And orphans, very important. Yeah, yeah, you really hammered the orphan angle. Uh, it, it's not that the movie wouldn't have worked, it's just a, a, it felt like we were already taking so many swings, new Bond, new director. Um, again, you really don't want to antagonise the, the fan base too much. And remember, a lot of the fan base haven't even seen a Bond movie at this point. They've walked in, seen the credits and walked out. And so for a lot of the diehard Bond fans, this is their introduction to James Bond. It's the first time they actually wound up sitting through a movie. And I just think, you know, to your credit, you're a fountain of ideas, but not all of them are going to make it onto the screen. I still think there was scope for four-fifths of the movie to see James Bond significantly disabled would have been pretty fun to watch, but, you know, agree to disagree. Once more. James Bond deholstering now uh, in his room. And... This was an important scene because um, I wanted to make sure that people knew Contessa could uh, sort of evaporate and move into other spaces at will. <laughs> sort of apparition. Yeah, so this is one of the battles that you won. Yes. Uh, you said it's very important that Contessa has the qualities of a ethereal being. And, you know... It's sort of one of those situations where you've really got to pick your battles because if, if I said no to everything you brought... You, what did you say no? Have, you'd said no to the orphanage angle, to leaning yeah. on that. You'd said no to but, James Bond in a wheelchair. Okay, first of all, I'll, you tell me what I said no to and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I said yes to as a concession. Well, I've given you the two top line ones. I said no, no to I the said music no to video the, with all the kids yeah, at the start. I said no to the orphanage angle. I said yes to bring your kid to work day. That's true. I said... But it did seem kind of fruitless... Because then we couldn't, you know, shoot them for the sequence yeah. that I had in mind, and we lost a lot of good kids. But not Jeremy, though. Not tough, strong Jeremy. No, we do like to think he's still out there swimming. In There's fact, been sightings. There's I'm been not, sightings yeah, of Jeremy. Did you see um, Jason Momoa's Aquaman? Mm. Yeah, he's in the background of about 15 shots. Fantastic. He wasn't even like hired for the film. It's just they were shooting near the water, and Jeremy yeah, gets around. You're shooting a guy's house. Fucking powerful arms. Yeah, crazy arms and legs. Mm. Tiny little torso. It's bizarre. It's just big limbs. The guy's all limbs, yeah. Anyhow, yeah, so hopefully you don't see it on the screen, but there was a lot of push and pull behind the scenes on this film, and um, I really think that it's a triumph, as I said, it's my first time seeing it, uh, that we have created such a cohesive product, and also with all of the sort of the the touches of glamour and, you know... um, you can't the, deny I made a beautiful film. The, the high life that we, we associate with the, the James Bond character. This is a, a I mean, it's a, it's a gorgeous movie. And, and he's never fucked a ghost before, crucially, yeah. in the series up to this point. That's right, yeah. He's, he still hasn't had sex with a ghost, and that is something that ironically haunts him. Uh, 
because he, he's as as we know, he's a ladies' man. He's he's laid people all over the world, but he's Chinese woman, Thai woman, European woman, French woman, British woman, Americans, all kinds of women, except women who are currently existing in between in the afterlife. Yeah, in the in the plane of existence between life and the afterlife. That's right. And she, in turn, has unfinished business, which is to, to have sex with a secret agent. So it's kind of a match made in heaven. Yeah. That's what makes this movie ultimately so, so tragic. We've established a sort of uh, cat and mouse rapport between James and his leading lady now. That's and right. So, cats famously try to have sex with mice, and then mice, in turn, try to murder cats. Famously. And so now we need to establish more who our villain will be, what the sort of... Uh, Secret Service mission that is going to be the thrust of this movie in, in tandem with the romantic um, angle. And this is sort of the introduction of that. He's, James thinks he's about to go out for, for a round of golf, but as we'll soon see, uh, you know, life's what happens when you're busy making plans. Fought hard to get that order in of orange juice. Yeah. The you ultimate are. thing to have after a vigorous night of lovemaking. And you you just want OJ, don't you? Orange juice diet. Every other day of filming, you'd only have orange juice. It's because I was having sex every second day. Vigorous sex. With? We don't need to get into to it, day. but let's just to say day, George Lazenby me. and I had a falling out. <laughs> Let us leave it there. There you go. So... Which I thought it was important to introduce the concept of orgies into the Bond universe, which is what that line about foursomes came from. And um, this 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 scene, uh, which I'm not credited as, as a screenwriter, which is, to be honest, a crime, because I did write most of this film that ultimately made it into the cinema. We want to see James Bond cool as a cucumber while he's getting kidnapped at gunpoint to make sure that everyone knows this guy doesn't just fuck. He doesn't die. He also doesn't die. Or get scared too easy. No. He's a fearless now, this opposite is a, of the virgin. That scene always bothered me. I, I found it very stressful that you filmed them pu- putting the roof on the convertible up while they were driving. Why I, is that? I always think you should pull over your convertible to put the roof up, but um, it shows you what I know. I just think it communicates a nervousness that you wouldn't want to associate with a Bond villain of, mm. of having to sort of pull over, then put the top up. And then keep going. It sort of breaks the illusion. So, the swagger, if you will. Yes. I've been learning a bit of lingo. Been haunting some kids recently. I see. Spending some time on Urban Dictionary. Now, that is one of the kids in prosthetics. Yeah, this was a a creative decision that I really, I never heard the end of this. Once I put it in, once the movie came out, everyone was quizzing me constantly. Why was there a cleaner just before one of the fight scenes? That was, no doubt about it, a little person who looked to be about 55 sweeping the floor. And I said that wasn't a little person, that was a child. Yeah. In prosthetics, to get around union laws, um, I mean, the whole thing seemed unnecessary. But now as I see it back in the movie, I've got to say, I'd like to apologize because it, it sets a tone. It was of a part of the orphan angle, so when we removed the music video of kids at the beach at the start, sure, it doesn't make sense now. It brings me no joy that that particular child actor was, um, you know, confused for an old man, even though we did put prosthetics on him, but it's his cross to bear, I guess. Now we're meeting... Um, Draco. 
Draco of Draco Construction, Tracy's dad, who I thought it would be cool. This character didn't actually exist in the scripted version of the movie that we received to That's make. Right. Um, because there was, yeah, it was sort of a big hole I felt in the story, a big Draco-sized hole. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had a guy who owns an international construction conglomerate which deals in legal and illegal business who loves discussing his daughter's sexual escapades? You did think A nurturing father. Yeah. A forward-thinking father. A liberal... Man of the world. And, you know, obviously we're watching this movie in a different era, but of, of, of its time, this is a, an incredibly liberal man. This is I a, don't think a lot of dads are trying to get their daughters laid now. No. That's how forward-thinking I was not by with, introducing this character. Not with the um, same level of intensity that Draco... Re- he really wants Tracy to... Um, he wants Tracy to get her end off. Yeah, in a big way. It's crucial. And there's only one way to do that get James Bond involved. That's right. He's Tracy, of course, has uh, struggled with the men because every time she gets close to climax, uh, she loses control of her transformation into a sort of gaseous form. And so Draco hires James Bond to um, well, to, to give his daughter a, a bone-shattering orgasm and in turn, James... Rightfully asks, well, what what can you do for me? What's in it for me? A million pounds. A million British pounds in 1969. It's a lot of money. What would that be now? Two million? Three million pounds? Sure. Yeah. Again, you can just see the 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 expense of the movie dripping off of every frame. And you work very closely with the DP on this. Every shot... Features something gold in it. Um, incredibly annoying to execute on set, but again, it's just one of those little sort of Easter eggs, one of those little pieces of trivia you can roll around with and, um, you know, hang your hat on. Full credit to the sound engineers in post-production as well because they were able to remove the wind chimes, which I insist on being in every room that I'm a part of. Uh, they thought it wouldn't be a worthy addition to the film. Agree to disagree, once again. Breezes are a part of life. It's what you said then. Yeah. It's what we say today. Yeah. I believe this is the longest conversation uh, that's in the film. Of course, I made a creative decision, which I 100% stand by, to have the third act of this film essentially contain next to no dialogue whatsoever. You want Um, it to be top heavy. I don't want to sort of put the cart before the horse here. How good does George Lazenby look, by the way? I mean, this is a man who is at the peak of his species, at the peak of his powers. This is a apex human being. That's right. And for this role, a lot of people were critical of George's accent. But um, remembering, he's an Australian playing a British secret agent. And within the role, so remember, this is George Lazenby playing George Lazenby playing James Bond, who in turn has to play another character later on who has an entirely different British accent. So... It's an Australian man doing an Australian accent, doing a British accent, who then has to do another British accent. It's an incredibly layered performance, and it'd be fair to wonder whether or not he probably might have had a little bit more confidence on set if we hadn't packed so much into the role, if he just got to be a traditional 007. Well, I think he actually pulled it off quite ably. 
I think he would rival Robert Downey Jr. for being able to, in Tropic Thunder, of course, for convincingly playing this layered character, playing mm-hmm. a character, playing a character role. Not a lot of movies have attempted that because not a lot trust their leading men yeah. or stars to take on that kind yeah, of complexity. A, but I thought, you know what? If anyone can do it, it's a Australian supermodel. There was a real tumult to your relationship with George. And at its dizzying highs, it was, you know, the closest working and personal relationship I've seen. But, um, sorry, I just need to point out, uh, if, if you remember, Cubby, because you were on set every day, that shot of James Bond throwing his hat onto the hat rack, that took two weeks of shooting for George to pull off. We, we spent so much crew time, so much money on celluloid just to wait for one take where George Lazenby could throw a bowler hat one and a half metres across a room to land on a hat rack. It was the hardest sequence to shoot in the movie. Yeah, it was um, It was a tough fortnight. I actually went on holiday to Belize mm. in the middle of that. I said, Belize it or not. He wasn't there for yeah, all of it. Belize it or not. Broccoli's not at home. Uh, but I'm glad you got it because, again, it's just one of those touches. And it, uh, this is why it's fun to do these director's commentaries. I mean, it's probably why you're spending so much of your time in the afterlife revisiting films you've seen, films you're responsible for, films you haven't seen or, or aren't responsible for, just because it's, it's so fun to remember these details and to share the information we have with, with it really others. Is. It really is. It's fun to reminisce, isn't it? Uh, this is M. Uh, since for master who's in charge of James Bond's operations in, in MI6 and um, what's interesting about my additions to this film and my directorial debut on the James Bond franchise where I really wanted to put my mark on the thing is I did I, I made some subtle cha- I made changes big and small so originally the operation to take down Blofeld in the script as we received it was called Operation Chaos I changed it to Operation Bedlam, because I thought it would be a nice reference to the age of the woman that James Bond takes to bed. Younger. That's right. Like a lamb, as opposed to a sheep. Yes. It's the stuff that not even I knew on set that, um, wow, that's what makes you a cut of up. It's how you got the gig. Now, Peter, I don't want to veer too far off course here, but... um, Say my name. It's Peter. What were some of the other films you wound up directing? I didn't have a huge number of directing credits, you might say. Um, I was quite a prolific second unit director on the James Bond series. Um, really not here to talk about my other work, to be totally honest with you, Cubby. Fair enough. Here to talk about James Bond and an Australian model who brought him to life. Isn't it refreshing to see Money Penny portrayed by a woman over the age of 35 on screen? Remember when women above the age of 35 could be objects of sexual desire in cinema? Because yeah. I do. I made a movie with one. <laughs> a true ally. One of the many ways in which uh, we both consider this to be one of the foremost feminist texts of its time. All ghosts are allies. Is that true? Yeah, it's part of the process, Cubby. When you die, you see the light, and the light is social conscience and empathy for all. People think it's an actual light. Fucking idiots. 
So now James Bond, the world's leading secret agent, has been afforded two weeks' holiday. Oh, yeah. This was a fun scene, wasn't it? That's right. James Bond throwing his dick around, wanting to pursue Blofeld, M telling him to get off the case, him saying, guess what, baby? I quit. And but then, then Money Penny sort of intercepting that and yeah. uh, letting the the hot temperatures of these two men, M and James Bond, who are at each other's throats, she sort of is this cooling plate to let temperatures fall a little That's bit fine. and negotiate a situation where Bond is off the job for a fortnight. All the, if, all the while lusting after James, sort of unrequited, um, you know, desire for something more than what he can offer her, which is mostly a good night in bed and chlamydia. I think they call it uh, nowadays a real Ross and Rachel of a situation, but mm-hmm. predating that, it used to be called a real James and Moneypenny scenario. That's right. Well, now, they won't they? Again, this is not dissimilar to your insistence on creating a card game for a scene. I thought it would be cool if James Bond went to a traditional bullfight. This one was all cubby. Tell us about this, cubby. Well, my idea was your traditional matador, and you said, yes, but... What if the bulls were smaller? And what if some of the matadors weren't matadors, but just people who stood in the way of the bulls? Mm-hmm. And so we had a very expensive and destructive few days shooting in Spain. Um, as you'll see here, this is, of course, all uh, plot advancement, character development, <laughs> James Bond re-meeting Teresa or mm-hmm. Tracy or Contessa. Why did we decide to give this woman three names? Because she has three distinct personalities in the movie. Fantastic. So they all sit down to a meal. The father, Draco, tries to sort of broker a, an arrangement between them. And she sees right through that as Contessa. She she cuts to the chase. But all the while, the real action of the film is happening out there in the bull ring. You love that. You made, her, you made her take that word papa so many times. Well, she you couldn't say it right initially. She kept saying papa uh, every time the line would come up. And I said, "It's you, you're in Spain. You don't say papa. You say papa. Diana Rigg, listen to me. Papa. Papa. Put a little stank then, on that yeah, second once syllable. Once you got it, you really drove it home. Yeah. So this is... One of the most incredible scenes of the movie. This is where we really took traditional bullfighting and sent it in a different direction. Yes, just a bunch of young adults getting lightly gored by a baby bull. It's a twist on an old favourite. That's right, and you wouldn't be allowed to make it these days. Not with all the rules and regulations and the, you know... Goddamn unions. Safety officers looking after animals. That's right. Too much red tape if you ask me, Cubby. Couldn't agree more. It's preventing a lot of good flicks from getting made. Shooting in Spain comes with its own unique challenges. Um, number one is the heat, of course. Number two is the language. Yes. They speak Spanish there. And Which we did not know coming in, unfortunately. Hugely inconvenient for us, an exclusively English-speaking crew at our, both our, our mutual insistence. We thought it would be disrespectful to the spirit of a British secret agent to hire any foreigners. That's right. We are, of course, representing Her Majesty. What does Her Majesty speak? The Queen's English. What will we speak on set? The very same thank you. So here we see Contessa cutting through the sort of red tape of a traditional business meeting where people dance around what they want. And she says, tell this motherfucker what he wants so I can get on with my life. 
Yes. The relationship between uh, James Bond and Draco as two negotiating parties fighting over a essentially gambling chip, which is Tessa, Contessa, Tracy, if you will. You have to remember the year is 1969. You have to remember the context. It wasn't that weird. Sure, the idea of a father trying to get his uh, semi-ghostly daughter laid, it was cutting edge, I would say, but using her as a negotiating chip in a contract involving marriage with your daughter, I mean, that was just yeah a standard sort of negotiation of dowry, wasn't it? We just got so much footage of that bull plowing that young man that we pretty much had to put as much of it in as we could. Yes. That's called recovering a cost because, unfortunately, that young man perished during filming. Now, now that James has sort of uh, received what he wanted from the business lunch, which is information pertaining to Blomfeld, the case he's trying to track down even when he's on holiday. Or Blofeld, if you will. He turns his hand to pursuing a woman who, as we will see here, may very well turn out to be the love of his life. Louis Armstrong singing... Uh, right here in the studio. It's so nice to just have him piping up from the back there. Louis, how are you? Very he, nice. He's brought yeah. a full band. He can't talk right now because he's singing. He, he nodded, though. You can hear this, but he's he's given us the go-ahead. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to... I kept the scene um, silent for a very particular reason. I wanted people to pay attention to what was happening, which is a montage. How many days was this set over? Four. Fantastic. A day, one day at the beach... One day at the gardens, a day in the city. One day in the markets of the city, and then on the fourth day they rest. Yes, very crucial. Beautiful montage. It is really establishes this scenario of two actors who want to have sex with each other, <laughs> but right. can't because of a director who insists on keeping the chemistry on screen and will use any aquatic-based weapon of their deployment to get that job done. What we have done with this montage, though, is established, uh, you know, something that goes beyond what James and his love interest traditionally have. This is a a real sense of connection that might be something deeper than... um, you the know, normal trust. Just a passing fancy. Those bears, by the way, that you saw on screen moments ago, uh, they were more kids that we put in prosthetics. Yeah. We've got sort of littered throughout the film. It's a bit of a Where's Wally situation where you try and pick out the kids. Because here's just, the thing yeah. about kids. If they're too young to legally be in the film, you can kind of get them to do anything. That's and right. you don't have to pay them very much money. If they, if they try and go to a union... Well, the union can't take them. They're too young. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. You've sort of got them by the bollocks because if they go to a union to complain, you say, well, you weren't allowed to be working on this movie in the first place. That's right. You want to incriminate yourself, Elliot? Elliot, if you had short and curlies, we'd be having you by them right now. That's right. So now with the information that Bond has received from Draco, that Draco's lawyer has some sort of connection to, um, what's the villain's name, did you say? Blofeld. The uh, core Bond villain. Like I said, I've never seen any of the movies. Mm. Uh, we have quite a fun sort of, again, I don't want to use the analogy, but a cat and mouse sequence where the lawyer leaves and now Bond, using some incredibly high-spec tech and all of his wiles as a secret agent, 
is going to break into his office. This is some classic spy shit. Yes. It's important to show on screen explicitly all the elements of what make James Bond Bond. Number one, yes, he's British, but his British accent is a little bit patchy. We know this. He's a man of the world. If you've ever he's been a to, sponge for accents. Yeah, if you've ever been to England, you'll meet a lot of people with all sorts of different accents. Yes. You can't all be from the same place. And they say, oh, but I am. Number two, the man loves to have sex with... Women of all kinds. Yes. Human, ghosts, a sort of in-between ghost-human. This is a sort of Everest, you see. He hasn't successfully uh, brought one to completion yet. Number three, he loves his gadgets. He does love his gadgets. And, you know, so far it looks like here's a man who's simply entered an office without any gadgets. But um, as you'll soon see, we introduce for the time what is just such an incredible piece of technology I, I was really proud we sat down together and we said what would we like to see represented on screen and we said what if there was a structure big enough to move heavy objects on a construction site in the same sort of a shape as a crane on a beach or eastery so we created a device called a crane which was a huge mechanical semi-structure that could operate a big bucket to basically move things to and And fro. They are now often used not just for um, lugging, you know, photocopiers and leather-bound cases, but also to build buildings. Yeah. One of the many innovations that were invented in the Bond cinematic universe that then got adopted in real life. Um, Of course, now we've got just a a real run-of-the-mill... Uh, we wanted to have some of the sort of accessible bits of everyday human life in the movie so people could get a bit of a, a doorway into their own lives. So this is a safe cracker slash Xerox machine uh, that's in a leather-bound yeah, briefcase, which you'll find in any, you know, office office department store. You know, you go and you, you, you check the, the cupboard at your parents' house. Now you probably find they've got an old one lying around. Yes. So it's basically a photocopier with a... Very high-end safe-cracking device attached to it. We've you all got... I mean, we don't need to explain this Plug it you. into the safe. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. Take the files that you need, photocopy them, pop it back on the crane. Fantastic bit of innovation ushered in from this film. That's a line I still think about. Life's too short for some day. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It really encourages you to live with purpose and conviction. Well, I wanted Draco to have this sort of um, philosopher king trying to get his daughter laid ear about him throughout the film, so I did try to abuse him with just not what was on the page in the script, not just limited to that, but I, I started throwing him some offers. You threw a few offers in there as well. Yeah, that, um, at one point, George Lazenby was giving him some lines uh, from the side as well. Yeah, he, he didn't take to George's lines so well, George's much. George's lines were disgusting. Yeah, they were filthy. And Absolutely this again, filthy. This is a George Lazenby ad-lib here. We said he picks up and reads a magazine. George said that could be a Playboy. Yeah, God. <laughs> but we had said no to him literally hundreds of times leading to this shoot day. Better not be talking shit. Hello. You? Hello, I heard my name from uh, that bush over there. Ah, George Lazenby. George. Welcome in, welcome in. We're just doing a director's commentary of On Your Majesty's Secret Service, as a matter of fact. I know, I, I was waiting for the perfect time to enter, and I thought I'd better get out in front of the story that I'm uh, some sort of disgusting, lecherous, lecherous, you know, sexy guy. 
Well, I am a sexy guy. You are a sexy guy, no doubt about it. Uh, in 1969, I think you were sort of a energetic, virulent version of yourself. Now uh, you're sort of an older, dulled man, uh, so it's not quite whoa. as confronting. But I what? tell you what, in the late 60s, you were forced to be reckoned with on set. What I lack in current... I guess, uh, opportunity to have sex. I make up for with this pant-splitting, ear-splitting erection that I must lug around with me at every turn. And when you say ear-splitting, you're referring to your own? Yes, yes. So much of the blood in my body is driven towards my penis that I have a sort of permanent gentle migraine. Oh, wow. That sounds awful. It really does. It's no good at all. You should talk to someone about that. Oh, I do. I'll talk to anyone who'll listen. I think we more mean like a professional. Actually, fun story. I was um, recently haunting a young man in New Zealand by the name of Tim who uh, had a, a small sort of a version of that himself recently when he was giving blood. And um, he ended up passing out and uh, pissing his pants at the blood donation Incredible. center. Yeah. It's just, when you deprive the brain of blood, it's wild what can happen. You're telling me. Now, this is a fun touch. So I I took his centerfold. It was technically my centerfold, but the way it's edited, it looks like it was his. Mm. And I masturbated in that lift. Oh, wow. Right then when the cameras were rolling? Oh, yeah. It is disgusting. Disgusting and I think illegal. Yeah. Even, even Sounds then. incriminating. I mean, the 60s are pretty loose, but... Thank God we didn't see that at the time, George. I uh, can't remember where we are now, but it's a beautiful looking homestead, isn't it? There Boy, were so nice. many high end locations that it can be difficult to to keep track of all of them. Yes, just a nice big building. Oh yes, of course. This is the after hours meeting uh, with M to try and get himself back on the case at M's personal quarters, you know? This is unheard of. Yes, and M was living large. Of course, an admiral in uh, Her Majesty's Navy, you know, it's the best kind of armed forces in the 60s. Thought it would be a nice touch for me to add to the film that M was really into having sex with butterflies. Yeah, it got edited out, all the sex stuff, so he just looks like a common butterfly hobbyist, but yeah. rest assured, yeah, he was... Um, the original, the director's cut of this film, which, I mean, really, we should be doing the director's commentary too. That's right, yeah. He had a lot more butterfly fucking in it. And he took his role seriously. Uh, he was having sex. Bernard Lee, I, I believe was the actor's name, was having sex with a lot of butterflies mm. a lot of the time. George... Yes, I don't know if you remember this, but this is uh, some critical exposition that we had to have in your your one outing as Bond, where we explained that. Uh, so you're going to be taking on a persona, Bray, yes. Hillary Bray, yes, or Hilly to his lady friends, um, as a a, a genial genealogist That's who's right. tracking family trees, as an expert in coat of ar- coats of arms, coats of ar- coats of arms, coats of arms. I think that's the pluralized and, uh, version of that. The plan, if I may embody James Bond once more, was to use this cover yes. to investigate Blofeld and whatever it was he was developing in the Swiss Alps. Yes. Which we will get to. 
Uh, the world is not enough. There we go. That was in the fake coat of arms that I personally drew up and designed as the cover for James Bond's own genealogy, which uh, I believe they turned into a James Bond film later down the line. Yeah, we did. With, yeah, um, do it again in a heartbeat. You make a second, the world is not enough. Yeah. Uh, can't remember who this guy is. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Sort of blanking on. This is this is Bray. This is. Oh yes, that's so this right. Is, uh, Hilly, Sir Hilary Bray, who uh, you George will as James will, will later portray. Um, a man who works at the Royal College of some that's right. shit. And you sort of what, what, what was your academic. what were the sort of creative decisions you were making when you decided to portray Hilary Bray on site at um, Blofeld's? What would you call it? Headquarters, Leah, and I wanted him to present as an effeminate man of academia who, once the sun had set and the blinds were shut, the man liked to yes. fuck. I don't know how else to put it. The man liked to fuck. Well, I, I, I think I, when I was embodying Bond and I, I did try to go sort of method, I found um, it could be easy to keep my sexual desires and proclivities at bay throughout the day, but come nightfall, I mean, <laughs> man's got to fuck. You're like a sex vampire. Yeah. Yeah, I am a bit. This is where we had to shift production over to the um, Swiss Alps. Which, listen, mid-shoot, you've already locked your story and your script, and then suddenly you've got to get out of Spain because relations have plummeted to an all-time low That's and you're right. being chased out by the authorities. We so you need we'd to shoot the rest of the movie in an exclusively English-speaking country, so we went to Switzerland. Yes. So you can imagine how embarrassed we were when we found out that they speak not just one language, There's but so many. upwards of three or four. In fact, English, I believe, uh, if my memory serves, wasn't even the lingua franco. That is correct. Of the nation. I think maybe German's more prevalent. German, French. Which I tell you what. But they're, they're not even your original German and French. They're Swiss German and Swiss French. Trying to honor the Queen's English while engaging in, in making a movie and then accidentally switching operations to somewhere where a form of German is the predominant language, it did yeah. not feel good. This was the 60s, so this was um, the scars of, you know, decisions made by certain countries through the century were still fresh in minds. Not the Swiss, though. Not those beautiful, neutral bastards. That's right. They just, they're like a metal child. They try and keep their head down, stay out of everything, while the eldest and the youngest battle for their parents' affections. I guess the parents in this analogy being America? Well, I was thinking sort of more Britain and Russia and then Germany being the youngest. It's not a history podcast. We don't need to. You guys want to see the erection? Yeah, I'd love to see the erection, actually. It's been years. Jesus Christ. (laughs) That thing was pretty unsightly in 1969. It is not looking any better now. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because... Fuck me, Mr. Lazenby. It was in this movie that I first got it. So before this movie, I used to be able to... It would go up and go down like yeah, a traditional yeah, yeah. boner. But like uh, a normal penis. That thing is 
is a sight for sore eyes. Yeah, I gotta go lie down. Okay, but I'll come back when it's the scene. I'll come back and I'll. What's I'll, the scene? Well, the, the scene where that. it happened. I'll show you. I'm just gonna look away. I'm gonna look somewhere else that isn't. It. That. Can you just do up the top button on my shirt, please? I'm really sorry, I can't. I, I, can't, I can't reach it. I it's too far from my it. arms. Please, I'll do it. There you go. <sighs> you look a picture. Thank you. I'll just go back to that bush. Cubby, you're a gentleman and a scholar for helping him out with that. I, I didn't, even as a ghost, I didn't have the stomach for that. <laughs> it's intense. Ah, uh, yes, 004. Now, a lot of key elements of this film were left on the cutting room floor involving his storyline, so we never explicitly kind of got to know who he is. But he's a, but in my mind, he's he's an ally on uh, James's side in MI6. Oh, he's one he, of the double O agents. He totally is. He's he's a trainee though, so he's very good at tailing people, following people. But he's not very good at being discreet, which is why he, he shows up on screen and on camera so frequently. He is responsible for sort of tracking James's location, making sure that you know. Um, MI6 know exactly where he is but his refusal to keep any sort of distance actually jeopardizes both his and James's safety people forget how hard it used to be to film stuff in helicopters because cameras were bigger and that is why you're getting a lot of helicopter shots right now people said Peter you need to edit some of this stuff out and I said go fuck yourself do you know how much it costs <laughs> for us to get all these big, beautiful cameras and a helicopter in the Swiss Alps. And it, it, it comes back to that thing. I mean, you've made a gorgeous movie. Thank you. People are resistant to change, but you, what Cubby. you've created is gorgeous. I'm having such a wonder, wonderful time seeing all this for the first time. So that is uh, the the ski chalet, the mountain for the, for the sort of public is outlined here. Where we're, where we're going, no regular folk are allowed. One element that I wanted to have in the film to really stamp my mark on the thing is it was my directorial debut in the James Bond franchise was to have a uh, German sort of maitre d' character. Is, is that what you're called? Matriarch? Yeah, maitre I think that's more what I'm going for. More, more a serving role. yeah. And you got uh, kind Il- of a madam of the house in Ilsa a way. Ilsa Stippart as yes. Irma Bunt. That's right. And she she was fantastic. I mean, I don't know if you've seen a, a sort of spy spoof franchise called Austin Powers, but to me it feels as though... Uh, sorry, a spy what? Spoof. What's... It's I like mean, a parody. I, you call that a, a spoof. How do you say it? I always thought it was spoof. Yeah. I always thought it's, I thought Spoof was... Uh, you and everyone else I talked to. Right. But, uh, you know, Irma can be seen in uh, Frau, Dr. Evil's right-hand lady, Dr. Evil himself. Uh, can Same be, woman? Just that sort of archetype. Just sort of archetype, that I, yeah. That what I you created, established, yes. that's right. My template. I've got to say, George Lazenby really did it. George, pipe down. Shush. God, he's going he's gonna to pass moaning. out again. Yeah. He's, I just wanted to compliment George Lazenby on his accent work here because now he is taking on not just his first but his second flavour of British. And it's a British. slightly more sort of posh yeah. 
I mean, not that James is an everyman necessarily, but uh, this is a, a more sort of refined, preppy, academic. Yeah. Uh, what do they call it? An ox came sort of a yeah, an oxbridge. Yeah. And no, an you ox make came, an ox come because yeah, you an ox came is the past tense of describing when you filleted an ox. And that is one of the methods that I believe was used to. Um, who's the sovereign that the king's speech is about again? Colin Firth. Yes. And they taught Colin Firth to get over his stuttering because they said, you need to articulate your words. Um, you need to talk as if you have an ox's cock in your mouth all of the time and you're filleting it. So you, you round, round out the your, round your sounds. How now, brown cow, the ox came in my mouth. <laughs> the ox in socks has a monstrous cocks. <laughs> they come... In my tum, tastes quite yum. These sorts of common uh, turns of phrase and elocution. Yes, lessons. I remember getting them as a boy. I sort of shirked them because I, I wanted to fit in with the other kids. You see, and uh, I, I grew up in a rather enough rough neighbourhood, but my parents had plans for me above my station, so they wanted me yeah. to be prepared with a uh, more this, refined I, way of speaking. Uh, yeah, if I recall correctly, you, the way you told me once, Peter, was that your, your parents saw a production of My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. and they they pretty much just tried to do that to you. Yes, and with some success. I mean. You directed a Bond? That's true. I did direct a Bond. Now, we wanted these rooms at the... Um, also got a lot of oxes off, so two caps in my feather. That's right. That's how they say that. So one of the other things we want to do at, at Blofeld's uh, Institute, if we could call it, or headquarters, is um, we wanted the rooms to remain beautiful and ornate, but also be slightly more modern, sleek, closed off, and a little more clinical. And so that's what we see here. Our art designers did such a good job on this film. That beautiful open fire. Those logs that are sitting next to the fireplace, and not a lot of people know that. Kids. Kids dressed up as wood. Yeah. Sort of be cheaper than sourcing actual wood bits of lumber. So yeah. we just put a few kids in makeup and um got them to sit next to the fire while we're shooting. That helicopter, that's a kid. <laughs> and in this shot here, George Lazenby was played by two kids. That's right. One on top of the other in a coat. It's pretty convincing, really, yeah. isn't it? This is where they- we inserted the idea for an iPad into the movie. Yes, we thought it would be cool if, um, and bearing in mind this did come out in 1969, Cubby and I worked on this one jointly. We were like, okay, how do you improve upon a bathroom mirror? What if you could fit a series of electrical circuits in there that were so sophisticated and small that it could replicate a mirror image by shooting a camera outward and then displaying that on a glass layer? And... um, I remember our soundie saying, uh, you mean a mirror? And I said, no, no, it will have the functionality of a mirror achieved through electronics. I remember him questioning why we didn't just want to use a mirror. And I remembering that being the day he was fired and we got our new soundie. That's right. And that soundie went on to be a man by the name of Steve Jobs. He was at the time, but, you know. He continued to be himself. Which was ironic because he sure lost himself a job on this shoot. Uh, now, oh. <laughs> James Bond being in a cravat. This was my sole 
uh, line in the sand. This was my everything else I could negotiate on, but this was my red line. Yeah, I said in my directorial debut in the Bond franchise, I insist on putting my own personal mark on this film, and that needs to come in the form of James Bond finally donning a cravat and wearing it well, in tandem with a kilt and some sort of slightly more traditional Scottish garb. It was my insistence that uh, we had several gorgeous women surround him. And that was mostly for me. And there you go. That's another little sort of self-knowing reference to um, previous Bond films. Obviously, we know that James Bond drinks a martini. He's got a catchphrase, which is... Shaken, not stirred. In this instance, he's playing Hilly Bray, Sir Hilary Bray, and so he has to think on his feet and come up with a different drink, which is uh, malt whiskey and branch water. Yes, that's what we called soda water back in the 60s because... uh, You couldn't carbonate it. fizz it up, you would smack it with a tree branch. I mean, Lazenby, he's passed out on the couch, but I really have got to give him his props. He's doing a pretty good posh British accent while describing what a genealogist does to this bevy of 24-year-olds. And it's a difficult role for James Bond to to play as a sort of frumpy, uh, socially awkward, stuffy genealogist, especially in a circumstance where traditionally James Bond would, would flourish as he's surrounded by all of these gorgeous women. Now, this was a little comedic beat that you uh, opened up in the film. You invented a dish called Steak Peas Gloria, which it turns out to just be chicken. Overcooked chicken, yeah. Yeah, sort of broiled chicken. Oh, so I guess we should probably um, remind people of the plot line of this movie, what's sort of going on over here. So James Bond, uh, in the role of Hilly, genealogist has infiltrated Blofeld's lair, which is a community and a clinic where people come if you are hot and female and 24 years old and allergic to something to get you over those allergies. That's right. Blofeld is a leading bacteriologist uh, in this film. I mean, something along those lines. And he's he's trying to help people get over their allergies uh, of course the famous banana shot in there something you cubby insisted on being in there is a nod to the emmanuel movies yeah. well uh, uh george and i sort of agreed it would be funny to to have a sort of um a banana on screen it's and, a penis looking food yeah while we weren't totally vindicated in this film it, it did uh, go on to inform a lot of george's uh later work mm. Yeah, so essentially uh, Blofeld runs this institute and the forward-facing reason is he wants to help solve people of different allergies. Yeah. Uh, Have we got to the other bit of the... He's also very interested in his own genealogy and wants official recognition as a count. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think there's a land claim involved, if I remember my additions correctly. qualifies Sir Hilary Bray's uh, visit, which is sanctioned to... um, Trying to stamp his authority on announcing him the count so that he would get this uh, inheritance. All the while, James Bond's real reason for being there is to find out just what he's up to. So we've got a lot of fun and games established here for the sort of middle chunk of our movie. Now, this. Oh, George, you're up. 
Oh god, this and you're right. It happened. Disgusting. Yeah. So I. Uh, so far, so good. Pretty Do you want flaccid, to explain to people chill. who can't make out what's happening on screen? I can. I mean, we're looking on a cell phone. I can barely see what's happening. What was? What was the sequence? Basically, we were doing a sort of dinner scene where I was sat amongst all the gorgeous ladies and. Um, one of the ladies in the world of the film, we weren't allowed to have sex, but of course, off camera, we were all fucking like maniacs. Wow, except for Diana Rigg, who I yeah, spraying water, spraying on, you water on me. Uh, and one of them reached under, and uh, she was, for the sake of the movie, writing her room number on my leg with lipstick. But mm. for the sake of herself, she was grabbing my member and uh, stroking it until it became engorged. My word. So far, so normal. Yes. But there must have been something going on with the way in which she did it or the sort of heightened sense of arousal I had. But um, It's like making a face and the wind changes. Yes, basically it went up normal size, normal style, and it didn't come back down. And I, I didn't want to draw attention to it on set, so I left it as it was. But mm-hmm. with every passing day, week, month, year, it grew. First barely recognizably at all but with time by a centimeter an inch a foot whoa which pretty much brings us to now i mean i'm a ghost i've seen a lot of shit so ask me was i hard when we filmed this scene were you hard yes go on ask again this is the same scene yeah still hard this is the same shot yeah still hard so, like, even when you're having conversations with uh, other actors in the film, there's no sort of alleviation to the condition? No, it's permanent. My God. Well, George, I, you know, you don't have to join us for the whole commentary if you don't want to. It's really, um, you can sort of just... Uh, I'll come a, and go as I please, yeah, yeah. You can have a lie down on the couch if you wish. I, I prefer the bush. You want to stay in the bush. Yeah, the bush is good. Leering at us from over there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Now, I thought it would be uh, funny to have a feature of the Blofeld family that they didn't have earlobes. And that's how you could tell if you got one, if you got a real one, you know? Yeah. So there's people rolling around claiming to be Blofelds in the world, as we know. But you know you got a real one when they don't have earlobes. Or a committed fake if they cut off their own earlobes. Yes. So this is the first time we see um, Blofeld on screen. I'm not sure if that's true. In this film. I'm not sure if that's true. Is it? Yeah. Okay. And immediately, once again, if you remember that... um, Spoof film I was talking about, you can see the similarities between Blofeld and Mike Myers' Dr. Evil. Yes, as I've been haunting kids that um, they all talk about Austin Powers. Kids are still talking about Austin Powers? They love Austin. If there's two things kids love these days, it's TikTok dancers and Austin Powers. I was just trying to um, remember the actor portraying this role of Blofeld. Oh, I can do that for you. Gabriel uh, Fuzzetti, if memory serves. No, no, it was uh, Telly Savalas. Oh, 
Of course, Tally. We called him Tally because the guy loved watching TV. It was a um, nickname that really stuck, and he sort of changed his stage name to go on performing as as Tally hereafter. But I tell you what, it was very difficult. I had two main jobs on set in addition to making a fantastic movie. Number one was spraying water on a horned-up George Lazenby to keep him off our leading lady. And rest assured, that was a big job. There we go. And uh, number two was trying to separate old Tally from his TV set when it was time to shoot. Yeah. So difficult. I never should have given that man his own trailer with a small black and white eight-inch television set. And what would you be watching but our old nemesis, the news? Yes. Always watching the news. So James, of course, now is, uh, as all of the patients are at the Blomfeld Clinic, Trapped inside of his room. He does not have control. operating procedure at any clinic. You want to make sure that patients are sequestered into their quarters at all times. And as well, you can imagine, this would be driving him crazy as he has an overwhelming desire to get out of that room and into room eight. Now, people may forget, but in 1969, this is how all doors worked. Every door would shut and then have an electronic lock, which you could short circuit by putting a uh, hairpin metal ruler, anything metallic and small and manipulatable into the crack and just sort of joining the two wires up. It was phased out during the mid-70s um, after a, a, a lot of people found a way to achieve a form of um, erotic pleasure by sort of gently uh, attaching electrodes to the locks and because it was hooked up to the mains, they sort of overshot the enjoyment That's right. amount of electricity and, and went right into a sort of fatal band of voltage. But up until that point, people forget this is how all doors worked. And it seemed like a pretty simple idiot-proof system. I mean, how wrong we can be, but... um, Just humans can't be trusted, can we? We bloody ruin everything. That's ruin the it. basic concept of d- electric doors. You should put that on a crest. What's that? Humans can't be trusted. Ah, yeah. Goes without saying, doesn't it? I've got to say, there's something about the image of George Lazenby in his prime just walking down a hallway in a kilt that is very exciting. He's built for the screen, this man. Well, he's gorgeous, isn't he? I mean, and that's Six foot two if he's an inch. Sun-kissed from that down-under sky. And with that sort of very uh, alluring and laid-back Australian attitude that... um. Turns on so many people. Turns on as in arouses, not as in turns on. So it becomes aggressive towards. Oh, I see. Yes. Yes. Although quite he, right. He, he did have quite a mood. Uh, he did. Comes from a long line of Australian actors who enjoy beating the shit out of other people. Hugh Jackman comes to mind immediately. Famous for his bar rules. Nicole Kidman. Oh, my God. Naomi, cannot stop her fighting people. Naomi Watts. Yes. Naomi Watts, um, you know, it's probably a little uncouth to talk about now, but she did murder three people in the heat of passion in a bar brawl in Chicago, 1995, which sort of cemented the Australian acting fraternity's reputation as being a bunch of assholes. She's so damn talented. She's just so good. Who do you think would win in a, in a fight between Naomi Watts and the actual King Kong? The real gorilla. Yeah, 
the real one. Probably Naomi. I think so too. If uh, we're talking about Kong from the more recent Kong film or Godzilla vs. Kong where they, for reasons that aren't clear to me, inflated his size, you'd probably have a more fair fight. But otherwise... Yeah, King Kong was already pretty big, Peter Jackson. You probably don't need to uh, beef him up even more. That's right. He used to be like... Big on the Empire State Building, but still a little gorilla. Yeah, yeah. And then they made him like as big as any building. Yes. Not necessary. But much. We should make all the movies. Yes, it's quite right. A cubby. Um, so this was the scene where I wanted to see James Bond fuck, basically. So I engineered a situation where... Um, one of the 24-year-olds would invite him over to the bed using the uh, lipstick on the on the, on the the thigh routine. He broke into her room using the electric door hack. Um, but I also had recently become aware of a CIA operation um, called MK Ultra, which I found fascinating at the time. This was through my research into the Secret Service, certain three-letter agencies in America, and I got to know some pretty um, top-level intelligence agents who were telling me some wonderful stories about a concept known as psychic driving, which was basically um, a very advanced form of hypnotism where you would break down a person's psyche using what might now be described as torture, sort of sleep deprivation, electrolysis, uh, LSD was in the mix, flashing lights, this sort of thing. And you would break down their very being, their personhood, and then sort of rebuild it in a way which you wanted to. And when I found out that the CIA was engaged in this sort of research, I thought to myself, I should probably let people know. We've got to get this out here. But you didn't want to be your sort of traditional... Murdered whistleblower. whistleblower, that's right. Mm. And so what do you do? You work your way up from being a second unit director to a... Big screen, big time, big honcho, water spraying man of film. And it would be too simple to simply explain the concept um, in a documentary. So instead, you insert it as a very important through line in George Lazenby's Bond. That's right. And I just sprinkled all these little clues to let the audience know that what we're seeing is real. So this is probably where Lazenby's Bond uh, risks being discovered that he, in fact, is not a nervous genealogist called Sir Hilary Bray. He's a cool dude who loves to fuck. That's right. The man laid down just a few too many baited hooks at that lady's dinner and is now, I suppose, reeling in some pretty big fish (laughs) as he goes on a fuck mission in between bouts of intense hypnosis. The guy uses exactly the same lines he has in the previous scene. That is on us. We only wrote one lot of script. It was very embarrassing. We knew that James Bond was going to bed multiple women at this um, organization of 24-year-olds. And look, the screenwriter should have done his bit. To be fair, we should have done ours. The reality was no one did their bit. So George Lazenby just had to recycle the same um, tete-a-tete with different He sold it well, though, and Mm. both times you got results. Sure, the character had sex with those women, but George made a point of also as a person having sex with those people. Hats off to all of them. In fact, every single extra you see on camera here, George had sex with. He was getting pretty desperate at this point in production. Except the kids, crucially. Yeah, yeah. 
well, the kids were camouflaged so well at the time. Yeah, that umbrella, that's a kid. Yeah. George stayed uh, well away from George all the George sort of became more and more frantic as he realized he, he couldn't get rid of this erection. And the mm-hmm. cruel irony was that every time he had sex, it actually would grow. So, a real catch-22, considering right. what usually happens when you have sex with an that's erection. That's right. Uh, 004 here, trying to make his way in, gain ingress to the uh, allergy Institute. compound to help James out. I just thought it would be a unique creative challenge for myself to think of the most nerdy shit possible. What's your classic nerd shit? Uh, People being allergic to things, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's, a, it's an embarrassing uh, def- deficiency to have as a it's person, It's a blight on your personality if you're allergic yeah. to anything. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a super rich, powerful Bond villain whose fucking thing was solving allergies. Can I make it believable? Can I make it fun? Can I somehow create a situation where this mission of his, which is the most nerdy shit possible, involves essentially a cavalcade of Miss Universe contestants? And, I mean, to your credit, it turned out the answer was yes. Mission succeeded, or my name isn't Peter R. Hunt? I think that's your name. Yeah, same. Well, that means I achieved my mission, I guess. 004, scaling a rocky mountain. Now, this bit was actually, um, that was shot back in Britain. Yeah, we, we, um, we just wanted to see British rocks represented on screen. We thought it was important. We thought it was important to see the Queen's rocks yeah. on film. Now, these birds are visibly not real, and um, that is because Alfred Hitchcock had, uh, well, basically, he went straight to the bird union when he made the birds, and yeah, he, he hired all acting birds for all of them. 20 years. We had to string up a bunch of kids, paint them black, and just tie them to bits of fishing wire and dangle them into the sky. And it even was then, phenomenally dangerous. Hitchcock tried to sue us. He said, it's not just real birds, it's anything representing birds. And we said, those are clearly kids. And Everyone he said, can see those are kids, Alfred. And he said, well, it's too convincing for my taste, but um, luckily the court saw it as we saw it, and so the child birds remained in the film. Yeah, this is the benefit, and we didn't know this at the time setting out, but this is the benefit of shooting your film in seven different countries. You get to pick the court that you have your trial in. Yeah. Little known fact, if someone comes to you and says, hey, your movie broke this law. You said, listen, I made it in Toronto. Canada's law dictates I can do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, so we, we had that trial in a kangaroo in fact, court. I, th- I think you'll find there's nothing in the rules of Canada that says a dog can't play basketball. <laughs> Just how they got away with that one. See, classic line yeah. from Blofeld. There are certain rules which must be observed. Just for context now, our decision to record the strictest commentary outside. Yes. Uh, With an impending storm. Yeah, there is. One of our better ideas. What feels like some sort of storm threatening to blow through here. So um, if you pick up any extra wind sounds, those chimes should be blowing pretty nice and strong now. Don't you worry about that. It's all going to plan. Just wanted to... Well, to the world as Bond faces duress throughout the film, so too should the production crew, the people behind the scenes. We're all about method. We are. About everything being method. That's why we insisted on our soundie being a very good listener. 
George Lazenby's brother, actually. Yeah. Family of fantastic listeners. And the the more that there George... There was the one after the first one got fired. Yeah. The, the more that George became sort of frantic with his quest to lose his erection, the, the better listener he became as he, he found himself looking for solutions to the point that he eventually supplanted his brother as the world's greatest listener. Takes a big man to listen. Takes a bigger man to keep listening through the world's largest erection. George Lazenby in a sweater, you know? What's not to love? Yum, yum. Uh, now we're really going to up the stakes in jeopardy here. Oh, yes. Yeah, so this is uh, now when James, as um, Hilly, has tried to go back to bed with Ruby. One of the 20, the, the Ruby. And, She's uh, not there, bitch. It's yeah. Fraulein. That's right. So Irma Bunt, the sort of enforcer, the maitre d' or matriarch, is, um, depends if it's breakfast or not. Yeah, uh, has has seen through James's very thin disguise, and now we enter a new phase of the film where James is no longer operating as Hillary Bray, but himself inside of the complex. And this, of course, is an opportunity to introduce one of the iconic scenes where the villain refuses to kill Bond. In my directorial debut on the Bond franchise, I thought it was important for me to put my own personal creative mark on the movie. And I thought it would be a cool idea if I did what all the other Bonds previously had done in allowing Bond an elaborate method to escape rather than when he's in the most extreme perilous situation of being caught out by the villain, being revealed to be a secret agent working on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They don't just shoot him in the head, which logic would dictate. You see these villains shoot a lot of other people in the head. Tons. They have a they real, have no qualm with yeah, murder. Reckless uh, sort of indifference to other people's lives and livelihood. But I thought I would strike out my own path as an individual by in keeping what with everyone else had done on previous Bond films and allowing Bond a pretty generous opportunity to escape certain death. That's right. It's also a great opportunity for um, plot and any sort of evil mastermind schemes to be laid out in uh, clear terms for our less discerning or intelligent audience members. Cubby invented that, babies. Yeah. He created that cinematic motif. Up until then, the audience had to like get little clues from the story about what was unfolding. Cubby said, listen, if I may, let's quote you. He said, listen, people who go to the flicks are fucking dummies. you got to tell them out loud, explicitly, what the rub is. That's right. It's called the Cubby Cuddle. And here I'm cuddling the audience in, and through the medium of uh, Blofeld, I keep forgetting his name, I'm whispering exactly what the details of the plot are to the audience. It's just a better way to make a film. Absolutely. You can't trust people. That, no. that really should be on a crest yeah. of some description. Yeah. Interesting fact about Tally. We tried so hard to make him so- smoke cigarettes like a normal person. but He refused. He the man had never to think, touched a cigarette in yeah, his fucking life. He which was convinced that if you held a cigarette horizontally, mm. it would go out. And so he spent the whole time, when he's not dragging on it, holding his cigarettes upright between his thumb and his forefinger. It's like not a how I've seen 
anybody hold or interact that's, with a cigarette in my life. It's, it's like a little chimney. Or death. Well, my name isn't Peter uh, Hunt. Which it is. Which, for the record, it is. Now, this is, um, yeah, so as we mentioned, the pivotal bit of the movie where Blofeld explains his dastardly plot, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah. He's developed something called an Omega virus, which changes the genetic information of any living organism, animal, or plant into becoming sterile, so it can't have offspring. So as you can imagine, by these um, just little tweaks of making it applicable to certain species, he can wipe out entire crops of plants, uh, uh, you know, starving off stock, or uh, simply wipe out, you know, cows generally throughout the world, or humans if he desires. Do exactly as you please. So what he's going to do is send a little taster of this wee virus to the UN to prove that he's got it, and hold them over a barrel to um, get them to announce his countship. I think it's some some riches off them. Yeah. I thought it was important that the other villain in this movie be the UN because I've long had an axe to grind with those. Yeah, you, you sort of think of them as a bunch of... pushing fuckwits. Yeah, that's right. You, you call them sniveling bureaucrats. That's right. So by way of prison, instead of containing him inside of an ordinary room, they decided that they would um, keep Bond in a clock tower. I mean, I don't know how else you would respond to a situation where your prisoner lashes out and almost kills your henchman. But to banish them to a clock tower. Yeah, just put them in a kind of a closet, a mechanical closet for a while. That makes sense to everybody, right? Makes sense to us. That's my favourite subtitle there. I don't know if you're watching this with subtitles on, but it says Clefilg. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple of pretty great subtitles in this. Uh one which I, I don't think either of us added because we didn't have any anything to do with the subtitling that came much, much after our involvement in the film. Um, but someone added a unconfident vibe to the sound, the chime of the elevator. So the subtitle reads, um, bell? <laughs> Pretty cool. The elevator, of course, played by another child in makeup. So it did make a bit more sense if you have that context that it would be an unconfident elevator. So now all of the uh, gorgeous women who have been healed here at uh, the Allergy Institute are being primed to be released into the world and we have not yet had a clear explanation on exactly how Blofeld plans on deploying these sleeper agents. Yeah, yeah. So they've been hypnotized to fuck. I mean, to the point of society. Fuck. Um, They were also doing some fucking, but they weren't hypnotized yeah, to do that their own choice them getting their fuck on not enough movies uh, with scenes of people trapped in giant clocks it's the only one of its kind I can remember I'm sure there's been some films involving the Big Ben but couldn't tell you about them when you're a ghost it's quite hard to get to the cinema surely it'd be easier than ever no no you're not allowed because you don't have any money so you can't pay the ticket price for just- admission Pass through a wall? What am I, a thief? I see. I'm going to steal a movie. Noble ghost. You wouldn't download a car, would you? If I could, I would. Fair enough. James Bond really in shit creek now, having to resort to 
Well, I guess MacGyver yeah. wasn't out yet, but a pretty DIY solution of ripping out his own pockets to wow. make some impromptu gloves. It was fortunate that this worked out for the film because George was actually doing that to aerate his erection. Again, the guy was trying literally anything he could think of to help himself. And oh, this, this is oh one God, of the most painful scenes. The sound mix, we had to turn all the way down. <sighs> he is climbing along a sort of coiled piece of metal, a which steel is rope a steel thing. rope. And... He is grazing. He's on top of it. So um, he's inside of a gondola. And you know those big tough metal ropes for a gondola. He's on top of that. It's agony to watch. Crawling his way across. And you can only imagine the friction it's causing on his giant erect penis. Huge amount of God, pain. I can't. It is, it is difficult to. Knowing what we know. Yeah. It's hard to watch. Harder than this bit where George gets a bit of sweet relief um, by almost getting crushed to death in some giant cogs. But luckily, he just drops off at the right time. Holds on. So now we have a scene where Blofeld is explicitly explaining for our even denser audience members how these agents will be used in the real world. It's a fantastic piece of movie making and a credit to you. Putting a bunch of hot women on screen? Yeah. Yeah. No one had thought to do that before me. That's right. I'm a visionary. A true visionary. Gondolas don't really get enough play these days, I feel. I've been haunting a lot of different countries recently. And gondolas are nowadays always chalked up as this sort of um, inequity. What does the word inequity mean? I mean... Uh, um, Antiquity. Antiquated? Antiquated? Do you mean like... Like an antique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sort of not of function. Mm. But the thing is, they're a great way to get around. I think the two biggest buildings in every city should have a gondola that goes between them. Imagine if there was a gondola between, uh, oh, I don't know, the two towers. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. Would have been awesome. Just double checking uh, when I was kicking around. <laughs> oh yeah, I would have just known about that. You had your own stuff going on. At what the time. about if it, well, there was one between the Big Ben and uh, Tower of London? You know, it's a lovely idea. How cool would that be? Look, it's a great idea. I was in New Zealand recently. I don't think there's any two buildings big enough to do it. It'd be the Sky Tower to and nothing to the ground. Oh, I always worry for George's fingers in that scene, but I needn't because I know the outcome. He survives, and he is about to wreak havoc on those who have wronged him and are trying to wrong society at large. Yeah, I wanted to, in my directorial debut in the Bond franchise, put my own creative mark on this movie, and I thought it would be cool to look to the horror genre to put a couple sort of jump scares in. That's right. Of um, putting James Bond's body in some impending... Yeah. visible grotesque danger like his his fingers about to be completely chewed up by mechanical gears still so stressful for me i i just want to say now this was um this is the beginning of a very long scene and sequence that was shot at dusk uh and there's going to be quite a lot of obviously the internal footage you can artificially light and it's a little bit easier but there are some huge outdoor sequences that were shot across Two years. Yeah, it took a long ass time. 
I wanted to put my own creative mark on this movie, and I thought yeah. that the way I could do that is extending production across two calendar years. That's right. You, you certainly... If you notice, you can actually see James Bond age throughout the scene of skiing down the mountain, which he's about to um, start engaging. And now, of course, Tracy, we haven't seen for some time, a.k.a. Contessa or Teresa, uh, daughter of Franco. Love interest of Bond. She's been off the scene for a good while while he's infiltrated the allergy center of Blofeld. And you might be wondering to yourself, huh, Wonder what Tracy's up to. I am. And I wanted you to think that as a viewer. That's my job as a director. My job as a director is to establish characters in the film and then ignore them to a point where you go, was there a woman named Tracy in this story that seemed quite pivotal like an hour ago? Well, it's a a long movie running in at two hours and 20 minutes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, Tim, you know I'm a huge advocate for hiring an objective, professional, licensed professional to tell my problems to, so that when they tell me what they think, I know I'm getting it straight. That's where BetterHelp comes in. That's right. BetterHelp have a big pile of professionals to talk to at your convenience online. You've done a bit of therapy, right, Guy? I started doing therapy during, uh, there was a pandemic, I don't know if you remember, and the benefits were immediate and long-lasting. They help give you skills that you can use when you are in stressful or anxious situations. Honestly, it's changed my life for the better. I guess that's why they call it BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash all time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash all time. I, I just want to quickly pause uh, behind the scenes conversation talk about the actual action that's taking place here. Oh, we're still getting the explainer from Blofeld. Yeah, one of my favourite things about this is um, I mean, I am an idiot, so having it explained to me made understanding the movie a lot easier. Carvey. No, I can say that. But also, it, it feels to me like Blofeld's plan, there's not a lot of sort of um, jargon to try and throw off, you know, like there's a very logical, practical element that is laid out in his plan. It's great. It's a great plan. In a way that it doesn't feel like they're hiding the sort of inconsistencies or the failures of it behind uh, 
barriers of language no. or, or things that Not the layman doesn't understand. Yeah. Mumbo jumbo to connect the dots for you. What's the plan? Get a bunch of hot twenty four year olds from all over the world to come and join you in a clinic. Brainwash the fuckers. Give them a biological agent without their knowledge. Insert a Manchurian candidate trigger in their subconscious, which even they don't know about. Send them off home. And then at a moment of your choosing, communicating through a compact mirror, a.k.a. two-way communique using radio frequencies, tell them to fucking spray that virus load. That's right. And then boom, we got a plan cooking, baby. Now this scene... George was meant to come out of the elevator, but he has this thing. He always masturbates in elevators, so he mm. just stayed in there. And it actually worked really well for the story because you'll see beautifully now. beautifully for the scene, didn't it? He, he really gives this henchman what for. Originally an accident, um, someone tapped on the glass to make sure George wasn't in there, and he was so taken aback by the fact that someone was intruding on his, uh, what did he call it, boner time? Yeah. That he burst the door open and took out one of our fantastic actors, but... Uh, we sort of just kept rolling yeah. and inserted it into the movie. So in this scene, that's right. George thinks he's disposing of a real body. Important to bear in mind, it's an incredibly convincing performance. And the reason for that is because he, he, he thinks he's, well, he's committed manslaughter. Yes. What do you think key work start means? Uh, storeroom. Yeah. Work stuff. <laughs> work stuff, I reckon. Shooting this on location, we just sort of used a lot of elements that were given to us. We didn't build that gondola, for example, um, nor is the gondola a bunch of kids painted up to look like a gondola. That's it's a, a real gondola. It's a real functioning gondola. Yeah. Yeah, so George tried out a few different quips, and it was probably his biggest weakness as a performer. Yes, as one of the only lines um, that he says in the final act of this movie maybe he should have been gift wrapped after taking out a henchman yeah i don't know about that one doesn't really yeah i mean what's he talking about you know what i mean yeah even something like i I have a hunch that you'll be in here for a while man yeah would be closer to it sucks but it's better relevant yeah Yeah. so this is the scene we were talking about before an incredibly challenging thing to shoot we've got a real man skiing down a real mountain at nightfall. Oh, hold on. I think we could brainstorm a few better lines um, that Bond could have said when taking out that henchman. Okay. Um, Don't let the door hit you on your way out. That's right. Because he stuffs him into a, a, a closet, you know? Yeah. Not sort of a pun, but just... Yeah, yeah. Of, you startled me while I was tending to my boner. Again, more uh, factual. Yeah, but, but still better than what he said. Yeah. This is a great era for skiing fashion. I know they're all on matching jackets. what about this? No, no, I don't have anything. Boy, I tell you what, we gave Lazenby a lot of shit about these terrible lines, but they're harder than they look. Yeah, they're hard, and and we wouldn't tell him the situation or what to say beforehand, so he was really operating on the fly. Mm. Oh, okay, what about this one, Cubby? Um, quit your scheming because they're all on they're in a ski chalet getting warmer yeah I hope you don't mind if I alp out yes because he's leaving the alps nice Um, 
oh, what about this? He punches him and the guy is unconscious in a closet and he says, why don't you try putting some ice on it? Is that anything? Some ice on You know, when you sort of get a black eye or something, you put a yeah. frozen no, I, uh, piece or something. I feel like we were getting warmer just before. I see. Blofeld loves flares. What about this? Uh, don't make a mountain out of a punch. I think Molehill would work fine. You would know, it? you've got the mountain angle. Why, why change a saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. See those trees? Oh, yeah, just to remind people um, who may be visually impaired, and I know they enjoy the movie this way, what we are treated to right now is this long dusk sequence of Bond getting away from Blofeld and half a dozen henchmen skiing yeah. down a mountain. Uh, Incredibly hard for me to shoot this. Yeah, all the trees in Switzerland are with a union and, and the fees that they charge to shoot in and around them is exorbitant. So we basically got a bunch of Swiss kids and we uh, we painted them up. We sure did. Glued bark to them and, um, you know, basically they had to stand still for the two years we were filming here. It was it, fucked up. We decided to shoot through the Christmas period, which, uh, to be honest, is on us. But every pine tree is signed up to the union and that's kind of their crucial work bit of the year. Yeah, so same. they were off. Uh, so, yeah, we had to paint, <laughs> glue together a bunch and then paint kids to look yeah. like um, So a lot of these, are, it looks like they're skiing through different parts well, of the mountain. Trees, but they're right the, yeah, they're the same... Um, it's the same kids. That's a bit of movie magic. Yeah, and we, we lost a lot of kids. Well, of course, you've got to um, you've got to get about thirty five kids together to make one tree. one big adult fir tree. Um, so it's just numbers. It's inevitable. It's a numbers game. That's what so you're you've making. A hundred trees, thirty five kids per tree. That's three thousand five hundred kids. I would defy any production to use three thousand five hundred kids to represent one hundred trees in the Swiss Alps for two years without losing anywhere between one or three thousand four hundred of those kids. Great yeah. plan uh, from Bond here, which is to... So satisfying to see someone poleaxe with a ski in mid Yeah, just smash someone who's taking a jump. Just smash them yeah. right that in the face with a ski. wasn't a henchman. That was someone who was skiing for leisure. They just happened to buy the same jacket. Yeah, this is... Um, I made the crab decision in my directorial debut on the James Bond franchise to put my own mark on the thing. I wanted to make sure that the production was shot uh, sequentially as it was laid out in the script. so It's just easier. This was the part where it's easier for me to edit later on. That's something I learned editing all these previous Bond movies I was hired to as an editor. Just uh, don't make me do that bit. Can you guys please just arrange the production so you shoot, you know, in the yeah, order in yeah. which it's going to all unfold? Right, all right. And this is the bit where we really lost the reins on George Lazenby a bit. Like, he just started going rogue. We were in the Alps... He started smacking up random skiers who were not involved in production. Well, you hire an Australian, you get an Australian actor. I had to upgrade from the spray bottle to a pressurized water cannon to keep him off of Diana Rigg. Yeah, harder to aim. So obviously you're also responsible for taking out a lot of different people. You know, yeah. If you're yeah, not no stopping doubt. George, you're water blasting people on the Alps. Hypothermia is no laughing matter. 
um, you know, except when our soundy lost a few toes because of frostbite because I blasted him with the water yeah, and he wasn't and wearing was, appropriate footwear. Yeah. That's pretty funny. If you don't laugh, you know, you'll cry. It's just the and funny thing it. about it is how important a big toe is for balance. You know, you don't know yeah. until you get blasted with a water cannon, a device designed to get your leading man from s- stopping getting his hands on your leading woman. Spray a soundy. Freezes big toe off. It's funny to see a guy that tall holding a boom pole fall over. The number of people you've sometimes got to, um, well, I guess, you know, comically and permanently injure to get in the way of George Lazenby's libido and um, the actors around him is uh, staggering. That's the thing. People think filmmaking's easy. Guess what? It isn't. So I said to all the critics when they watched this and they panned it upon release. Oh, yeah. Well, you fucking try and round yeah. up 3,500 kids. Yeah. Tape them together and paint Who them up as fair trees. don't even speak the same language as you. You try and... and don't even speak the same language as each other. You, <laughs> you try and argue with a maniacal producer if you'll... Excuse you can, you can the turn of phrase, I, I, Cubby. That's okay. Who insists that the lead character... Can't be in a wheelchair for the whole film. You try and wrangle with a um, a, a standard issue fire hose from um, a, a Swiss fire department in the cold while shooting. It's hard. and then you try conducting a director's commentary outdoors in the middle of a rainstorm. Yeah, and you tell me how you find it. You tell me if you enjoy the process, if you find it easy. Because I don't think you would. But this is what you got to do for the fl- for the flicks. Yeah. It's again a lovely bit of a local touch there. There was a, a real Swiss market on this night. These are real people. Yes. This was the bit of production where, um, look, we had lost control of George. We had burned through the entire budget shooting that two-year down a mountain scene. So finally at the end of it, we were sort of open to all ideas to get across the finish line. And um, we were stuck in Switzerland at the time, found a ice skating festival that we happened upon and just started shooting. Yeah. They will tell you in uh, film school these days that you need releases to have people on uh, on screen. You but can barely move for release forms on, on sets for television shows or movies nowadays. Do you, do you know what I say to that? Go tell the fucking UN, you pencil-pushing assholes. No one gives a shit. Once the camera's on you and you've got it in a cinema, it's done. You're laughing. The whole thing's done. Great song um, that our Soundy wrote for this scene. And now, as promised, the the reintroduction. Oh, yeah, Tracy's back. It's It's a Christmas song, but... um, so the lyrics it, kind of don't make sense. Yeah, it's kind of about friendship and kindness, etc., etc. It sort of sounds like it was run through um, a Google Translator a few times back and forth. Is it? It sort of feels like snow or something. This, um, it is, well, it's, it's quite. It's a credit to the interesting d- rain for this time of year it's outdoors to the rain. in this part of the world where we are recording the director's commentary. Just how heavily it's falling <laughs> now. Gives you a real sense of place and camaraderie with what's happening on well, screen in the mountains, doesn't it? It certainly does give me a deeper sense of empathy for the... Um, Although these people on the mountain are drier than us right now, which is interesting. Well, and they're dressed for the weather, which is a big difference. Yes, that's true. 
you know, in, uh, in the colder parts of Europe, they often say there's no such thing as um, bad weather, just bad clothes. Right. And so that's a trap we've fallen into presently. Quite. Just going to check on the old med service. Sure. Just see what that weather pattern's doing. Checking that rain radar. That's right. The people have a right to know. So, um, James Bond now, in uh, a little creative touch I wanted to add to the film in my directorial debut well, on the Bond franchise. Well, you did want to sort of leave your own mark on it, as I recall. I really did. And so I thought it would be pretty cool to let the woman do the driving. What some might consider quite an un-James Bond move, but I thought, you know what? We've established Tracy as a bad bitch. Let's put her behind the wheel. And you were right to do it. It's a decision that really helped cement this movie's reputation as one of the foremost feminine, feminine, fem, feminist huh, films of our time. All of the above. <laughs> Just been uh, joined by a kitty cat outside. This director's commentary. It's essential to have one roaming around. Yeah. Just helps you really keep your eyes on the prize. So... One of the things about James Bond is um, he's emotionally unavailable. The guy, quite simply, cannot stop quipping. So even when his life's under threat and he's been in this insane circumstance, if he comes across a romantic interest, he's not going to let down his guard for one moment. He's going to make jokes. That's right. Much like a um, rainstorm or a cat trying to derail a director's commentary, James Bond will not be deterred from his mission. The cat is now <laughs> rubbing up on the lid of the phone. Cell phone that we're watching on. It's good. <laughs> it's sort of, <laughs> we've engaged in a, a small battle now with the local cat. <laughs> oh, really? Like James Bond, we will press on. Yeah, with the task. Well, at hand. we must <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> the cat's taken a small tumble and uh, quite <laughs> rightly decided to leave. <laughs> right, so uh, yes, James Bond giving a um, a nice little kiss on the cheek to Tess as she drives away from the baddies. Now is yeah. really, I would say that. Our composer, John Barry, has taken the wheel on providing the emotional heft while we do some terrible green screen work and convincing yeah. people that Tessa is driving. But the, the external shots look great. Yeah, yeah. The car's sort of careening down, you know, these very tightly packed, narrow roads between banks of snow on either side. It's um, reminiscent of a, a bobsled, if you will, and almost a, uh, a foreshadowing, as, of course, this has a very famous... Um, bobsled chase sequence this film yes something to look forward to this is a great scene um, where James shows just how reckless his disregard is for human life well I mean to be fair Tessa's got the wheel at this point now they've entered a rally of some sort so just absolutely lousy with VW Beatles and yeah. Small cars of that nature. It's a great and expensive action sequence. Um, both Bond and the chasing henchmen. It's just inescapable to describe how chilly and wet it has become yeah. in our recording situation. How do we get out, Tracy? Wish I knew. Wish I knew. Well, 
James does know. What he'll do is he'll point to a heavily pedestrianised area just off the course. Sort of like... This was an offer from Lazenbean. It's so good. I want you to complete what's about to happen here because this is crucial. So they are... They're sort of trapped in this circuit, this uh, NASCAR-style round and roundabout of a car race, unable to really catch a break and find an exit point. And then James has the incredible idea to to do what, Cubby? Because this was your offer. To drive through a pedestrianised area? Yeah. Yeah. And an attempt to throw off the baddies as if they would have a higher moral code than James Bond would in trying to avoid... Killing innocent civilians. I think it's important to represent the complexity of people and the duality of man on screen. And so while James understands these people have a desire to kill himself and eventually, you know, hold the entire world to ransom, he also knows that on an interpersonal scale, it's very unlikely that he'd be willing to follow them in a car through a pedestrian mall. Or so he believes anyway. Let's find out, folks. It's all unfolding in front of our eyes. Uh, now, of course, they didn't get the opportunity because they crashed their car and get upturned. But yes, and then exploded, which yeah, was something yeah. that I established. No one had done that in film before, but I wanted to create a rule where if any car flipped onto its top, it would explode. It would explode. Tracy's throwing her own quips in there. She just said we didn't even stop for the prize, sort of indicating that they may have won the rally, which is just like. I think an important thing to show that these two lovebirds are on the same level. That's right. But they, they are, were made for each other. They're now in a snowstorm. It's so we, we have, a, 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 again, some real jeopardy here. I mean, they've outrun the bad guys, but um, if you get caught in one of these Swiss snowstorms high in the Alps in a car, you're liable to freeze to death. That's right. And it's sort of akin to recording a director's commentary outside uh, in an environment and time of year and maybe place on Earth where you're liable to just get absolutely drenched. That's right. It is still hosing down. But if I am to judge those cloud formations behind you, I have a feeling this thing should blow through and, you know, God willing, we'll be basked in sunlight within the hour. Just just as the film is due to end. (laughs) Well, you know, I blame the pandemic. And you blame everything on the pandemic. I do. Why do you blame the pandemic, Cubby, for, for the weather? Nah, I just blame the pandemic for political correct. I, I think the real pandemic's political correctness. Oh, I see. I get the angle. So, um, Contessa and James have found themselves in a barn. refuse in the storm. They found a, an empty barn, drove the car in, and uh, have found some great accommodation for the night. That's right. And remember, these are two people who have not yet consummated their. Very clear love for one another. So we are at high risk of, um, well, of what you've been working against this entire film, which is a sex scene between the two leads. Now, at this oh, point... Oh, I didn't... I, I mean, you'll, you'll see it in a couple of minutes, but my God, really battling George to keep his hands off her in this scene as well. And I succeeded thanks to my water cannon. Or did I? No, I didn't. No, I remember what happened now. I yelled, cut. George Lazenby grabbed a nearby pitchfork and lobbed it into a piece of our set, which deployed Contessa 
who was in a separate bed hanging over him to roll onto his body. Everyone was so confused about whether we would keep shooting. Yeah. Whether we cut when I, the director, said cut. That's right. I mean, I was out of money, out of ideas, and running out of chances. And incredibly cold. It is so cold on those Alps. Cat's back. Oh, God. Bit of a fun scene here between Bond and Tracy where she obviously is incredibly horny because she's been holding out for her desire to have sex with 007. If you could make a sequel to any movie that already exists, you could pick your own writer, director, cinematographer, leading actors. What would you want to make a sequel to? Great question, and I'm going to say Cars 2. <laughs> you want to see the old broccoli mark on the Cars franchise? Yeah. I'd what love, would you do with it? Well, I'd love to see what happens when uh, Lightning McQueen is told that um, the world's moving on from, you know, the petrochemical boom and is going to electric. What I'd Holy really like shit. to see What is, happens in the Cars universe when fossil fuels get banned? Well, Lightning McQueen goes on a bit of a spree. Jesus. Yeah. Straight for Silicon Valley, the enemy. Wow. You've got that iconic sort of iconic, laconic Owen Wilson dialogue taking place as he just mows through various different streets and um, office buildings. Sort of like that uh, Michael Douglas movie, Falling Down, but That's in the right. Cars universe. He's just a, a car with nothing left That's to right. lose. It's all building to this incredible scene with... Um, Elon Musk at the SpaceX headquarters. Yeah. He's trying to get away on a plane. Lightning saying planes aren't, you know, electric. And, um, well, I I don't want to give up the ghost or give away too much too soon. But uh, rest assured, it's also a hybrid. So it's done with um, your classic Pixar animation, some of Jim Henson's puppets. Oh, I was going to say, Lightning McQueen's not a hybrid. I thought that was sort of the whole point of the movie. And real people. Right, right, right. No, yeah, the movie's decidedly anti-hybrid. Yeah, that's okay. With respect to cars, but in terms of movie making. Very hybrid. Yeah. Okay. You? Oh, look, I'd make a sequel to this film on Her Majesty's Secret Service 2. And what would happen in it? Largely the same events. But it would be a lot heavier on the orphan angle. Yeah, you're really not letting that go. And got, James Bond would be in a wheelchair the whole time after the but between second your teeth, scene. Yeah. So after that incredible romance scene. I mean, imagine all of the alpine skiing with him in a wheelchair. It just opens up. We've seen James seen, yeah. Bond do it all. Submarines. He's gone to space. He's uh, driven tanks. He's, uh, you know, he's done it all. But he hasn't, he hasn't been confined to a wheelchair yet, and I just think it would be an interesting realm for him to uh, exist in. I've seen, uh, you know, skiers in wheelchairs before, and it, it actually looks like a, a really good time. Big dynamite. So, yeah, we had that little moment of reprieve from all the action where uh, James seduces Tracy, and then we're right back into it here as Bloomfeld... Tracks them down the mountain. Blowfeld, you're chucking an M in there constantly, Cubby. It's your old age, I guess. I am senile. And dead. Yeah. 
Um, fun fact about this whole scene is that none of our original cast are in it. We got a, a bunch of kids who are a lot more cost effective, biffed them down a mountain and got um, makeup to do a really convincing job of dressing them up as James Bond, uh, George Lazenby, of course, um, Diana Rigg and the rest. Sadly, we did lose one of the kids to, uh, what do you call this, a snowblower? Is that what this machine is? It sort of cuts uh, a path a snow, in the snow? snow well, piercer? Yeah. And we kept it in. The cameras were rolling. It is probably the most gruesome scene in a Bond film to date. Yes, it's insane. I mean, we see a man uh, fall down a snow trench, get ground up in, in this machine, and then pushed out the top. Yeah. Yeah. In the form of ground, red, bloodied body parts among right. the powdered white snow. They say don't eat the yellow snow. I'd, I'd also recommend steering clear of the red snow because chances are it's a person's guts. Big time. Especially a, you know, a little kid. Makes you sad. Makes you sad to think about. Well, and it's why it's best not to. Mm-hmm. So now Bluefeld has got the idea that uh, if he can't catch them, by God, the snow can. So he finds out that they're on an avalanche area and sets off a detonator that creates, well, probably one of the greatest risks to um, yeah. now, a person, secret agent or no, an avalanche. to film directors, as it turns out, because this shot, which I actually thought was a pretty bloody good idea, considering we were out of money, for a final action beat to insert into the film. What is more exciting than seeing the entire side of a mountain range collapse in on some actors? Yeah. I mean, just fantastic. <laughs> so we were onto a skeleton crew at that point. A lot of people were bailed out of the production because um, a lot of checks were bouncing by that stage. And I said, look, I'll do it myself. And you did? So I initiated an avalanche on the Swiss Alps, and can I tell you what? I got in a lot of trouble well, for that. the thing about an avalanche is you don't really know how big one is until you're at the bottom of a mountain watching it come towards you. That's what makes it exciting. It's, Man, do we lose a lot of kids in this sequence. Yeah, because it's not just the kids playing henchmen, of course. We've also still got some of those kids playing trees. Now, have we also and, started putting kids on the production as yeah. well? A lot cheaper to... And we told them just to stand kids. strong. You know, yeah. if you're being a tree, keep be brave, being a tree. Be brave, we keep saying. Be holding the boom. Keep holding the boom. We want brave little boys and girls out there. It doesn't matter Action. How, how brave an eight-year-old is being. In the face of a real avalanche triggered by the director, you know... That kid's pretty much mostly snow. Yeah. And, you know, the irony is, of course, that now that snow is still mostly kids. Still, though, can't argue with results. It's a hell of a scene. Isn't it? I mean, just a lot of beautiful shots of, uh, of mountains and snow. If you've got it, flaunt it. Put it on the screen. Can I tell you, whenever I hear someone say, if you got it flaunted, I always think of a quote from the Nickelodeon show, As Told by Ginger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe, the film that you, Cubby Broccoli, were a huge fan of. Well, I didn't. I did like the... I, was there a film? I remember it was a TV show. Maybe there was a film. But she says, uh, they say, if you got it, flaunt it. But what if you don't? And whenever I hear that, I always want to shake the screen and say, but you've got it, Ginger. You know. Just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean you don't ha- have it. And with time, you will see it. That's the thing about... 
Cubby Broccoli. You can take the man out of the film production, but you can't take the film production out of the man. He sees star quality, he'll tell you. Nothing of not encouraging. James Bond now, uh, back to base. Yeah, and he's uh, pretty much told M exactly what happened, and he said, we need to get this guy. We And we need, you know, the UN sucks. He's Yeah, he's a big anti-UN guy. This was a bit where I wanted to put my frustrations with the UN on screen. Well, and your frustrations with unions. You know, the, the United Nations, I well, guess. Well, you can't spell union without a U and an N. That's right. They go right up the top. As do those snivelling bureaucrats. Mm. Where are they based? Who's that? The UN. Geneva, I believe. The bastards. Basically, Bond still wants to kill this guy, and M says, "Mm, No. We're going to leave it. No, because the snivelling UN don't want to. They think it's too risky, which I think is a very accurate description of how the UN would have treated this situation in real life. What, do you think a guy like James Bond is going to stand for that sort of behaviour? I don't think an organisation like MI6 should. What, they're going to take orders from the UN? A bunch of fucking nerds? Yeah. Who, who equivalent all the time about water quality and the fact that you can't put kids on mountains when you're yeah. shooting a movie? Water is water is water. Get the fuck out of here. Water, water everywhere. So let's all have a drink, you know? You know who said that? Homer Simpson. Did he? Mm-hmm. Well, that was a Peter R. Hunt original. Oh, that's the nail on the coffin. Operation Bedlam is dead. I'd like to introduce you to Oper- Operation Bed Calf. Operation Bed Foal. Oh, yes, now, okay. I did forget about this. So it's a, a whole, you know how a whole I, final action sequence. Yes, and I'll tell you how I financed a scene that we had uh, completely run out of budget we with moments to, ago. Yeah, we we well, we didn't try to. The studio tried to end the movie with the scene you just saw. Well, you are the studio. Yeah, and what I tried to do was stop the movie. Yes, <laughs> and what you did was continue the movie. I said, "Listen, I've got an idea. That casino game I invented, Blanco, Blanco, Blanco." We're going to sell the rights to the Bellagio. Wasn't it Bunko, Bunko, Bunko? Yes. Blanco, Blanco, Blanco was white, your white, father's white. game. Bank, bank, bank. So we did. We got negotiations with the Bellagio in Las Vegas. They loved the game because um, it didn't have any discernible rules. So yeah. the house could win uh, even more than usual. But rich people loved this allure of um, a confidence game that yeah, involved yeah. beautiful women getting in over their skis, <laughs> as it is. And uh, we managed to use the funds from that licensing deal to pay for this final sequence. And I regret nothing. Did I introduce a horrible new chapter into the American's obsession with gambling addiction? Yeah, I did. Undeniably. Did I worsen a societal problem that his... Um, unfairly been exploited by casinos onto the most vulnerable members of our society. Look, it happened. Yeah. And what happened, happened. And you shouldn't be judged for it. I just want to say, because the trade-off is this fucking cool helicopter scene. So this guy Blofeld, yeah. he's been so protective of all the information, everything that happens in the allergy center. Oh, he's like, yeah. He's no locking one, everyone behind no doors. No one can come in, no one can come out. Yep, yep, and yep. then, you know, he's taken 
Tracy, prisoner, she got caught in the avalanche. He's taking her back up and he's sort of being like, I'm going to make you my wife if you want. And she's yeah. like, yeah, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you've got these unsanctioned helicopters flying through. Yes. Which he notices, gets on the comms and says, hey, get the fuck out of my airspace. I just feel like he'd be on such high alert. And then as soon as he's given half a reason to not look into these this helicopters. This is my brilliant screenwriting, though. And this ad that I stitched on on the fly, they just call themselves the Red Cross, as any hero would do. <laughs> Claim to be a totally politically neutral medic coming onto the battle scene. Just tell everyone you're the Red Cross. And then when they're not looking, you shoot them. It is kind of how Switzerland governed itself through a couple of world wars and did nothing but burnish their reputation. Super heroic. Sometimes the strongest stance you can take is not a stance at all. And then you shoot them. It's a silent position of neutrality. And And hey, if you've got some safes which can, you know, store Nazi bullion gold. Ah, well, the better. What What a... Happy coincidence. Yeah, gold's, gold doesn't have a political alliance. Gold's no. neutral. As I've always said, banco, banco, <laughs> banco. So after being told by MI6 and the UN that... Um, I'm that actually is- more interested to explore this new direction you're taking cars, if I may, just while we're sort of getting into the meat and potatoes of... I mean, look, long story short, there's a lot of talk in some helicopters for a while, so we'll let them... Have at it. Okay. Tell me more about this uh, This Cars 3. C- could you see a Cars 4 happening? Well, it sort of depends. Has Lightning McQueen taken out Elon Musk? Like, does he actually murder him? Cars 4, and this is where I'm worried that it becomes a little bit derivative of the Fast and the Furious franchise, but most of it's set in space. Wow. Yeah. So um, basically, Lightning McQueen and Elon Musk get into a standoff at SpaceX HQ, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Lightning McQueen points out the, um, well, the 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 irony, or not even the irony, but the hypocrisy in sort of trying to create a world that is built around electric vehicles when you're still using fossil fuels to, you know, pretty much entertain yourself in space. Mm-hmm. And Elon's not willing to hear it. So he sends himself up. So Lightning's pretty much left, you know, by himself at SpaceX. And he... Um, that's where the movie ends. It's a cliffhanger. So he figures out how to get himself into space. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got a car mm-hmm. and a person in space. Okay. This is the one thing we didn't want to have happen. <laughs> Almost, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, there's possibilities. Yeah. They could go to Mars. Um, they could come across, you know, various different other characters from other intellectual properties. Maybe E.T. hosts them. Maybe Elon call home, phone home, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just haven't really gotten that far yet. So Elon is sort of a blowfeld to Lightning McQueen's James Bond, where they are to a, use a Bond analogy, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's a necessary evil for one another. Sort of the Joker and Batman. You know, one can't exist without the other being there. So Lightning can never fully kill Elon because then he would lose his whole reason for being. Yeah, well, I guess it's sort of, you know, the damage Elon has done to people like Lightning McQueen is um, it's already taken seed. You know, that's already growing. The uh, the electric vehicle movement is slowly, you know, gaining ground on and eventually will make petrol cars obsolete. And it doesn't matter if you kill Elon Musk now. It doesn't matter if you kill him in space. But 
people know about electric vehicles and um, that's the way that society seems to be moving. So, yeah, I think Lightning McQueen's got a big battle on his hands and how, how exactly he chooses to address that and whether or not he's willing to reform the way he thinks about it and sort of um, use what he knows as a petrol-driven car to help other cars. It's It's just, it's all... It's all up for grabs. Still looking for a director. I will say that. Could be a person, could be a ghost. I will say that. That's what I want to hear. That is what I want to hear, Cubby. Right. So back to the task at hand. This was a really fun scene to direct. Um, We've got a bunch of kids dressed up as henchmen coming out of a helicopter on a mountainside, uh, penetrating the lair of Blofeld. A lot of gunfights, um, quite a dangerous sort of operation to have children in charge of all these firearms. Of course, this predates prop guns even being a thing in yeah. the cinema. This was 1969, of course. That guy still has that metal ring around his head. Yes. We used a different guy to fall down the stairs. That's right. Two guys. Two guys, one character. Now, this is something that um, George Lazenby actually fought for in his contract. He said, I want in one shot of the movie for me to be flying down a mountainside on my front shooting a gun. Yeah. Like some sort of and we said, murderous luge. George, your T-shirt will, get, T-shirt will get wet, you know, and you're not going to slide well. And then from behind his back, he pulled out a sort of one of those canteen plastic lunch trays. And he said, I'll slide on this. And we said, yeah, we'll shoot it. We can't promise it's going to be in the movie. I don't think it's going to work. But shit, it looked cool. It looked so fucking <laughs> looked cool. So we were so wrong. Yeah. We had to hold production so everyone could have a turn doing that. And um, everyone got to fire a live gun while yep. they were doing it. Yep. Lost one more kid down that luge, though, on the lunchbox lid, which was sad. But, you know, after the first 800, it sort of drops in the bucket. Yeah, we're not technically allowed to say that, but it, it certainly does have that effect. Pretty cool special effects being employed here. Um, we had a melt a bit of glass after love, one of the crazed chemists starts yeah. throwing vats of acid and at James I, Bond. I just love that look that Lazenby gives the glass, as if to say, "What are you? What are you melted glass?" Yeah, hey, uh, not looking so sharp now. No, it doesn't yeah. really work. Uh, mm. Kind of does. Ah, what if he poked his head through it and he said, ah, I can see clearly now. The acid is gone. <laughs> Tell you what, those quips, man, they're harder than they look. Yeah, it's hard to come up with a quip in real time. So, Bond now, he's a bit of an obsessive. While the UN and MI6 are pretty happy to let the entire fact that Blofeld is going to control all of humanity slide... Bond's taking photos of a world map, which yes. is uh, further details as to how Blofeld plans on deploying his um, his allergy queens. I believe in the movie they're called Angels of Death. That's right. It's, yeah, that's what Blofeld calls them. I want to bring back those uh, cameras. Those little sort of flat cameras. Where you kind of like snap them back and forward to take a photo. You like that? They've got like a moving mechanical bit with the sort of two halves and you fold it in together and it goes takes the photo like that's cool man yeah that is cool so we've got some jeopardy now 
Draco, uh, yeah. he saved his daughter. Mm-hmm. They've done their work. They're yep. all going to evacuate the yep. um, the allergy center, and uh, Bond is still at risk here. He's chasing Blofeld. It just seems unbelievable um, to people who maybe have never seen this movie before but know what Bond is. That's such a core component of the plot is about an allergy center <laughs> by the most devious villain in the Bond universe, Blofeld. But it's also, at the same time, it's such a well thought through. It's great. And like... It's really great. Sound and tight plot line. I really have to give props to Ian Fleming, of course. Don't we all. For writing the book. Man earned us a lot of money. But also to Richard Mybaum, who uh, did the screenplay. As I say, I was a pretty significant contributor as well, but didn't manage to get a screenwriting credit. Yeah, that was my call. Much to my chagrin. And your shit grin, as I remember. And my shit-eating grin as I wielded my power over you, you bag of shit. I don't know where that came from. I am so sorry. I'm a ghost. I let bygones be bygones. I just tried to pat you on the back. My hand passed right through your body. Here we go. The famous bobsled chase sequence. Now, this uh, sequence, I was actually told later, uh, served as the inspiration for a film franchise called Cool Runnings. That's right. Which is pretty... It's just nice to have a legacy, you know, to leave a legacy for other filmmakers to build upon. It uh, came from the idea that, what if John Candy coached a bunch of people from Jamaica how to drive a bobsled? John Candy came up with that and... um. After watching this. Yeah. He's brought it up in many, many interviews. Just, uh, you know, those interviews aren't around anymore. It's the only thing, so you can't look them up. But rest assured, it's true. He was a funny guy, John Candy. Gone before his time. He would have been a good Bond, I think. He would have been a funny Bond. Oh, yeah, Grenades. None of Grenades movies at the moment, for my liking. They've really sort of lost favour, but... So who was, the, who was the evil genius who designed the first grenade? Like, what a, you know, what a cool weapon. Yeah. Like a ball, a ball that bomb explodes. Mm. I imagine it started with, you know, your classic cartoon, light a fuse, throw a big metal thing containing shrapnel and gunpowder, mm. and then some... Some smarty was like, hey, what if we put a pin on it? Yeah, what if we made that a real thing? Nothing more stressful than opening your grenade and your bobsled and having well, it on, rattling around in front of you. Hold on for a second, though. Cubby. I mean, they were real. That's where the cartoon got the idea. It wasn't vice versa. No, no, no. They got the idea from a cartoon. I think the concept of a bomb was first in the cartoons, yeah. and then someone went, I'm going to create a grenade version of this. Same thing for anvils, for sticks of dynamite, right. for coyotes and roadrunners. They didn't exist. All came about because of cartoons. Huh, the more you know. That's why they got so many in Los Angeles, those coyotes. Because they love the flicks. Yeah. Some people told me that this bobsleigh scene went on for too long after the cinema-going audience had already sat down for a casual two hours and a quarter of James Bond. But I say, go fuck yourself. It's my on, money yeah. and my directorial debut in the James Bond franchise. It was really incumbent on me to put my own personal stamp on this movie. 
So true. A lot of movies nowadays will have a big action sequence and then quite a lot of falling action as they sort of resolve a lot of the more um, interpersonal plot points. But it's a real testament to you and the unique um, calling card that you left on this film that you said, no, it will be action unto the very last. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I want for my rhythm. Action, sex, action, light comedy, light romance, exposition, action, 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 sadness. And I want people to leave the cinema at that that final moment, just before the credits roll, going, what did I just watch? Didn't feel like a James Bond movie to me. I would say, no, it was a Peter R. Hunt movie. Great little plug for Hennessy. Fantastic brandy. Really top shelf stuff. Uh, that product mentioned uh, paid for this latter bit of the film, actually. Quick mention of Hennessy in there. It's, instructing a St. Bernard to go and fetch you Hennessy is, is a pretty cool thing to do when you've almost died yeah. on the mountain, isn't it? And having that St. Bernard actually retrieve the Hennessy, well, that just about takes the cake. So... And so it happens that Bond and Tracy are married. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if, um, for the people who are just following along on our audio commentary only, we quite made this explicit enough, but uh, James Bond did sign up to marry Tracy and and then renounced his allegiance to the British Secret Service so that he could be a full dedicated husband and not a secret agent who has a wife on the side. That's right. Money Penny is devastated, both personally and professionally. M and Q are both in attendance at the wedding. We've got a cake-cutting ceremony unfolding right now. Oh, wait, M's not here, but Q is. Draco's henchmen are there, including the, the, the very first fight scene that Bond has in the movie. Isn't that a nice button? That's a lovely touch. All, all together. This is where Franco tries to make good on his... Um, initial offer to give James Bond a million dollars to fuck the ever-loving shit out of his daughter as his lawfully wedded wife and Bond says I'll be having sex on my own time and my own dime he doesn't say that but that would have been a good quip that actually it's a good punch up yeah Q giving him the uh, nod of approval there this is a Great instance of not just you, but the screenwriters hoping to leave their own sort of indelible, unique creative mark on the franchise by marrying off Bond and entirely changing the trajectory of the franchise. And it's one that I signed off on and everyone more or less agreed to throughout the entire making of the movie. And quickly regretted upon its release. Yeah. All it took was the very first reviewer to do his dastardly work in his grubby little paper and type out his little words and send it to his disgusting little printer and distribute it via his yucky little paper boy onto people's horrible little doorsteps. And we were sunk. I love that wave Lazenby gives money, Penny, as if to say, maybe another time. I don't intend on being married for for very very long. long. Au revoir, of course, French for good luck. James Bond being showered in flowers as he leaves his own wedding in the marital vehicle. Beautiful ceremony. 
That is easily $10,000 worth of flowers in this shot alone. Yeah, when you're James Bond, money is no object. But when you're financing these movies, it really is. We couldn't afford to get flowers, so basically we shot this wedding in Portugal, and we just got a bunch of Portuguese kids, and, um, well, we, we hung them up like flowers. Luckily, the Portuguese court system is not exactly the strongest institution in the world, so when people tried to take us to court for child labor law violations, we said, sure. See you in Portuguese court. We, of course, don't speak Portuguese, so none of the uh, claims or accusations held water and the cases were thrown out. That beautiful one and a half words, probably the sweetest in the English language, mistrial. (laughs) So, happily ever after for our James Bond. He's been through a lot. I believe this is his seventh outing on the big screen. Ian Fleming bringing a uh, beautiful conclusion by partnering up with a woman who's finally won his heart for good after his many trysts, romantic encounters, and uh, unavoidable venereal disease. He's had more venereal diseases than we've had hot dinners, but by God, the guy got away with it. Sure did. And now his unsuspecting wife, whom he has yet to deflower, is about to get a swift lesson in the powerful pharmaceutical abilities of penicillin. Of penicillin. But what's this? Blofeld is alive, and so is the Frau. Fraulein? Bunt. She, she does have a Fraulein, because she's always frowning. More importantly, she's got a submachine gun, which she just loaded into James Bond's car while he was tying his shoelace or something outside. And in a harrowing into the film and the marriage... James Bond literally does not know how to process his grief as his newlywed wife has been shot dead in cold blood. Caught one right between the eyes. And he does not know what to do. I mean, this is... A passing police officer's just uh, come into... I mean, this is the emotional high watermark of James Bond to this date, I would say. He says, it's quite all right, right, really. She's She's having having a a little rest to the police officer. We'll be going on soon. He simply doesn't know how how to process what's going on. And fair enough, too. You can't imagine. Cubby in retrospect, was this uh, this sort of vulnerability and, and emotional depth to bond, uh, this fragility? Was this something that we. I really like we captured the fragility, but I, I do think that there was an element of um, a lack of self belief in marrying him and then so quickly undoing the marriage and sort of just callously killing off his wife. It. Um, Part of that didn't sit well with me. It was a move that I believe uh, How I Met Your Mother drew a lot of inspiration from when Barney Barney finally got together with Robin. Ever so briefly, and then they broke up. And on that note, our credits roll, our audience dissipates from the cinema, and And Cubby and I take a deep and deserved bow, uh, soaking in the accolades afforded to us for this fantastic film, 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's right. We hope you enjoyed the film and we hope you enjoyed our company. Um, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun to revisit and honestly, it, it watches better than I remember. Oh, yeah. Great flick. It's a, it's a piece I of work a I'm proud flick. of. You really did. And, you know, might I say, I do feel like you, in several ways, left your unique uh, creative stamp on this film, which I don't know if that's something you're trying for at all, but it's something you've succeeded in doing. Well, sometimes you just trip over these things. At any rate, I'm off to go haunt some Portuguese kids now. That sounds horrible. Catch you later, Cubby. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. So, Robert, tell the people what's a pretendian. It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us. Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 